Jump into the leadership game. Rise to the challenge and apply to become a DKM first-timer or a J.P. Morgan Chase Fellow. This is an exciting experience that will take your leadership skills to a new level. You'll learn from ACB passionate leaders and mentors. You continue your leadership journey. Don't delay. Apply today. For more information, please visit https slash slash www.acb.org slash 2023 first timers or contact Kenneth Simeon Sr. at simeon.k at outlook.com. The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service, nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, everyone, to have a cup of Joe with Joe. Now, the good thing it's extremely early here on the West Coast, so. Oh, not anymore? Okay, good. Yeah, well, I'm on my second, so hey, I'm doing great. Uh, I want to, if we have, um, I want to first of all welcome my committee members that are here and that are on Zoom or that's at home. Uh, the ones that are up here is Artist Basin. Artist is, uh, <laughs> I know Artist. I, this is one of the things we were talking about as far as mentoring. Uh, I mean, not intentionally, but uh, she makes me feel so comfortable being the ACB membership chair. So I I literally can go to for her for whatever. Also, Christy Crespin. Christy. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh Christy's been so vocal and and passionate about uh all the things that we mentioned in in the membership committee and uh we wouldn't have gotten a lot of things that, well what we've done so far this year without her and we got very strong voices on on the membership committee of course that's that's what I love and of course uh obviously Pam Metz obviously you guys know her <laughs> See, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I kind of knew, but I found out that uh, she didn't like me at first when I when I. But now she's okay with me. She's okay with it. <laughs> okay, I'm not the only one that lives in L.A. Larry lives in lives well, not in L.A. Oh, sorry, that's the Angels there. That's that's Orange County. Uh. What are the things? I uh, also want to welcome the uh, uh, one of the ones who, who on the national level is uh, that I'm a part of the mentoring um, program of uh, Kenneth Simeon is here. Hello, Kenneth. <laughs> Not to talk about that, but okay. Kenneth, raise your hand. See if everybody can see it. <laughs> And it's going to say any words for us over there. He'd... Okay, well, say, uh, I I won't pay you to, to say any words. I'm sorry. I, uh, actually, I would if I had the money. I, Kenneth is awesome. I love Kenneth. One of the things, uh, well, I, first of all, I wanted to talk about some one of the, some of the things that we have done. Um, we've talked about a lot, uh, but 
one of the things that I wanted to accomplish here in, uh, is I wanted to make it a more welcoming, um, uh, make us more welcoming to our chapters, our affiliates, to our members, and and who at large members, you're included. With you're a member, I don't I don't separate it. I mean, I know for purposes of uh, uh what's your name? Yes, you're at large. But you're a member to me. Yeah, that's all. You're just a regular member. Now, um, yeah, we don't we 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 do a lot of, uh, and I've mentioned this before. We do a lot of things right, but some of the things we don't, and we don't welcome our new members. Um, maybe on the state level, maybe on a maybe on a chapter and an affiliate level, but not on the state level. So one of the one of the things that I wanted to accomplish is to is to uh, come up with a letter. Just a letter, just a just to, so we can email out to our new members. We've done that. That letter is sitting on Gabe Griffith's desk for approval right now. So we're waiting for him to to do that. Then we um, we'll start that soon. Also, the second thing was um, this is my first convention um, in person, um, and. I wanted to give out the chapter slash affiliate of the award. We're doing that tonight. So I'm really excited about that. Yes, we are. Um, yeah, the vote is in and the people have spoken. That's what I was saying. So we're giving that, that, well, that'll be a part of the banquet tonight. Uh, we've also discussed, um, uh, but we still going to get it into into um we we just because leadership is is huge as you know if you have been to the candidate if you went to the candidates forum uh, all throughout this convention you've heard about leadership and mentoring and things like that well we're we totally support the board at doing what they're doing but as part of the membership one of our goals is to create educational seminars so we're going to create a leadership seminar. And one of the things, if you guys remember yesterday, one of the things that I, I, I'm very proud of myself and my committee of, if we say something, we're going to do it. And I've heard that's been, that's been said before. It's going to happen this time. And I also, um, uh, we also accepting, I listen to everyone and, Jamie and Shayna has already reached out and I'll be uh, taking their input as well. And if you guys have any input, I'll take you guys input as well. But so we're, that's one of our priorities we're going to work on. Um, also, uh, as, oh, you know, as far as we all talk about new members, yes, we do need younger members. We do. And I'm, I support that. But what about our older members too? You, you know, like those who've been here for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, we need at least some recognition and we need assistance from them. So we will be working on that too, trying to come up with a with a, with a program for that. <laughs> okay, though, whatever you, you, yeah, I should agree with that. 
seasoned or experienced. If you wanted, if you chose that, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah judging by the, those, those, uh, <laughs> repeat what forget oh oh zoom can i hear okay okay season seasonally challenge was that the one chronicle chronicologic advanced okay <laughs> i like that Yeah, was this Vivian up here? Welcome, let's welcome, I didn't know she was here. Vivian, hey. You know, so thank you, Vivian. Um, so some, and, 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 uh, and I actually give a lot of credit to Pam on thinking up that because, you know, we all focus on younger members and we want to get younger, we want more people. And Cam, it wasn't it wasn't contentious, but I have no problem with with uh but with 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 all my uh, committee members expressing their feelings. So that was something she had mentioned. I'm like, well, what, we don't do anything for older members either. Um, that's just a I mean, so we so we'll 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 work on something like that. Okay, seasoned. Okay, whatever. I don't know. Seasoned. There you go. <laughs> Uh, we're also, we have, we have, one thing I didn't know is we have a bunch of guidelines and things that has not been updated. Yeah, it's okay, Guillermo. No, it's not, it's not your, <laughs> Guillermo, you're awesome. I tell you, uh, you're smiling. She like Guillermo. And, uh, but he just he's the one that started he said sorry i'm like you're okay Kevin. i wouldn't even know about the membership committee if it wasn't for Guillermo. so so i definitely want to thank him for that but um we're also we're working on um on on that and artists is gonna assist with that um i think christy is as well so we do have a a plethora of things that we are we're we're definitely uh, working on, and uh, we uh, I've, I've also gotten even things that we're not really that, that's not really in the pre- purview of the membership committee. We still try to come up with ideas and and pass them along. Another issue we we were we were talking about, and um, actually I haven't got in touch with my. Uh, well, only one of the committee members, Dorini, and mentioned it, and I and I actually wanted to come up with, and this is in the it's not in the final stages yet, but we want to come up with it because uh, on the president's call, there was a I, it really heard something that troubled me. Uh, some people in the local chapter level doesn't want to run because. They're scared they're going to do something wrong or they don't know what a board position or a director is. We're going to, we're out to change that. We're going to, we want to come up with an orientation more than likely, probably at least at next year's convention, um, at, at least like a, uh, to explain what 
a director does, what to explain, what a treasurer does. I mean, we we need stuff like that. Um, so, who? Oh, okay. Artist say, see, artist told me she she has manuals on those too. Six. I'm lucky. I'm so fortunate. I mean, we are all fortunate. Um, let's see, I don't even know that either. But, but um, so we we so we're gonna work on those. Uh, we're also gonna work on um, um, doing little thing. Now we I'm strong dealing with advocacy. But I really want more members, more chapters and affiliates to to participate in the chapter slash affiliate of the year award. Uh, I was a little disappointed about how many how many uh, submissions we got. We need more. And what do we need? Uh, it's you don't. It, uh, yes, it can be a project, but it just can be. It just could be something you do, like if you have planned something for white cane day uh, or, or simple something simple like that so I, I, I would love more submissions on that too but we definitely want more submissions and we want more chapters to work with each other i know even for fun the san francisco chapter and uh, the acb capital chapter we get on and we, uh, I know a couple of years ago, we got on Zoom just to check out the Dodger Giants game. We we want more chapters to do things like that. <laughs> so, uh, so we, as you said, we have a lot and we're going to try to do as much as we can. Um, if you guys have any questions for me or, our lovely committee that's up here. Uh, I'm ready to accept the, those questions. We end at 8.45, so hey, got some time. Any questions or comments, too? Um, we could have wait for the, the mic. Yeah, well, yeah, well, we have any members on Zoom Frank as well. Frank Belty. Okay. Go ahead, Frank. I have an idea that what I would like to do to encourage members is that I want to get myself a business card with CCB on it that that I with my email and phone number on it. And if if anybody has a suggestion for an accessible website where I can order them, because I tried Vistaprint and it wasn't accessible. So if anybody has a suggestion for that, that would be nice. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. You see, that's what I like. I love. Anyone else? I have no raised hands in Zoom right now. Good morning, everybody on the membership committee. This is Stephanie Watts. Pardon me. And I, I just want to applaud you, Joe, for just stepping forward and your committee as well. I think that uh, what you're presenting right now sounds very exciting. And as a member of uh, ACB Capital Chapter and, of course, our state affiliate, I mean, I, I, I'm just proud. I'm just proud of the committee. So thank you guys very much. That's my comment. Thank you. 
Thank you, Stephanie. And by the way, the committee says thank you too. <laughs> yes, you did. I heard it. Hi, it's Karen Schroeder. Hi, Karen. Hey. Um, I love the membership committee. I've actually was just telling someone I miss being on it because um, I used to be very involved. Thank you, Vivian. Um, anyway, I was wondering if it looks like you've got a good committee here. I didn't hear how many, six people maybe? Oh, we actually have nine. Nine. I think it would be awesome if you guys could create like liaisons to chapters and affiliates so that people would know who they could go to with questions, issues, uh, compliments, um, exciting things to share, whatever. And they would know which of you they could go to as a liaison. That's just my thought. Like the idea. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I should do like that idea. Oh, I also want to say one more thing that we're going to eventually work on too. We want to, especially if we have any presidents out there, we want to get with you because we want to create, um, we want to create a profile, a, like a podcast, a profile of your chapter, profile your chapters and affiliates. So we want to work on that too. So if you guys want, you can get in touch with uh, with us for that too. Good. Oh, okay. Good morning, everybody. This is Pam. Um, one of the things, one of the things I like to see us do on the membership committee, and we've talked about it, and Vita has yelled about it, and others have yelled about it, is a leadership seminar. Because um, one of the things we all need to find in in CCB or any other organization that we belong to is our own niche, and where we work the best at. And after watching Shauna Ray and Joshua and others last night, yes, I think it's um, I think it's important. And listening to Phil uh, talk about Shauna Ray, and I love Phil. Um, he's my treasurer and host always for Kahlua. Um, him with uh, Shauna Ray, I'm I, I don't even know Shauna Ray and Shana, Shana, whatever. Shana because everybody called her Shauna last night. She's keep getting She's the morning. I don't call her Shauna now, but um. <laughs> but uh Shana did a great job and she, yes, she did. she's working hard to learn how to to find her niche in CCB. So I think it's important that and one of the things that Ken used to tell me all the time was find your own place. Find where you fit in and love to work and you that will be where you will stay. So um I think if we set up some type of leadership seminar in the next year and each of us can help the those of us coming behind, those of them coming behind us, that sound, that sentence did not sound right. Um, will be able to find their own place in CCB, and it'll make it a stronger organization. Thank you, Pam. And I'll, I also want to say, yeah, the leadership seminar will happen. It will. Oh, my dead body, it will happen. <laughs> but uh, also, uh, I do want to say. Uh, the leader, leadership and mentorship never ends. Like uh, Christy and I is uh, we're both on the ACB mentoring um, uh, uh, as well right now. So we're constantly 
learning. And I love to learn from uh, seasoned um, uh, ACB or CCB members all the way to our newest members. I don't discriminate. I look. I just love to learn. Okay. We have uh, any other? Yeah. Good morning, Joe. Good it's, morning, uh, Anthony Signorello from Glendale Burbank Area Chapter. And we have a couple uh, couple comments. Okay. One on the issue of um, accessible uh, cards, <clears throat> business cards. I do believe that uh, National Braille Press offers something along those lines. Uh, and in talking about that, we just had a transition of uh, uh, officers this year. Mm -hmm. We had our, our locks actually in November. And uh, when when I was handed over uh, uh, a little case, in it was a number of business cards. That basically, uh, they were not accessible, but they were business cards that talked about CCB and, you know, it, they were membership cards is what they were. And so um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, maybe uh, down the road here, our chapter doing something with that as well. And that is doing some accessible cards that, that talk a little bit about membership, not, you know, just a blurb on it. And with a phone number and 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 uh, a name and uh, going down the road with that 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 sounds like a good idea to me. Um, one more thing, and that is, um, I'm a musician, and you know, a lot of people say, you know, boy, geez, I I appreciate musicians, and uh, I wish the heck I could play an instrument. And I I need people to realize that you need an audience as well. You know, in other words, yeah, we do need people to step up and be an author, but we also need people just to just to be there and hear what's going on and, and, and perhaps take an interest in that way. So um, we want to encourage people to run for things. We had a little bit of trouble this year with, uh, with our elections, with people wanting to step up. And uh, I actually feel that a lot of that had to do with the issue of uh, us being cut off for a couple of years by uh, COVID. Uh, could be wrong. Could be something else. It might, just might be the nature of things because even before that, People were not connecting very well. You know, it was like uh, I'd rather I'd rather be on a phone than talk to somebody in person. So, at any rate, just some thoughts. And uh, I I tried membership. I was on the membership committee. I've been on a, diff a few different committees. What I'm trying to say here is, yeah, it takes time to find where you really fit. Really does. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. And um, what I what I do want to say is thank you and. Hey. Is that you trying to turn me off, Larry? I think it's Larry. No, just joking. <laughs> Joe, this is David. Uh, go ahead, David. Okay, thank you. I have two comments. First of all, I remember many, many years ago mm -hmm. when Baba Costa was president, the CCB pro pro produced a brochure uh, in partnership with KCSN Radio in Northridge, and they produced a beautiful audio brochure that described what CCB was. It welcomed new members. It talked about some of our accomplishments, and it was wonderful. I wish we could find it and update it. I, I wonder if we still have it in the files. Uh, it, 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 it certainly made me feel welcome. 
The other thing is that I remember we used to organize legislative seminars. And we, we organized them not just for the Governmental Affairs Committee. We organized them for everybody. And we invited people. We talked about how a, how a bill makes its way through the legislature, how a bill becomes law, because we wanted our members to know about it. We didn't necessarily as, assume that every single one would be an advocate. We wanted them to be involved with the process so they could follow it. And I would like to urge us to start uh, organizing some legislative seminars. Thank you. Like it, David. I love it. What about, how about, because uh, I do know artists being on the Governmental Affairs Committee. But how do you, how does my members feel about a legislative uh, seminar for everyone? Do you guys like that idea? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Joe. Yeah. Um, this is Libby Ostergaard from Fresno. I had a question. Somebody uh, mentioned, um, did I cut you off? Oh, okay. Well, I just wanted to say that, well, I was speaking with artists, that's something we could possibly um, consider with the um, legis the governmental affairs or legislative committees. We can, the membership could work on together with that, David. And uh that's a priority to you. It's a priority to us as well. So we'll 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 definitely look at that and see what we can come up with. Okay, Sorry, go ahead. Joe. Sorry, Joe, I didn't mean to cut you. Oh, no you problem, off. no problem. Um, I know we have you know a one eight hundred number for our office here, mm -hmm. but I was wondering if would it be feasible? And I know you know sometimes these one eight hundred numbers or whatever. They can be pretty costly. Would it be possible to have something like that besides the office so that, you know, people could call and uh, they need, you know, help finding out I live so-and-so? Because I have some friends in Medifee down by Temecula, and I've been trying to get them to join for years. And they're like out in the boondocks and there's no... You know, there's no way they can get to chapters or anything because it would take them an hour or two hours just to get to Riverside to, to go to their chapter uh, and stuff. So I'm wondering if if a phone number like that would be feasible to help people, uh, you know, and, and I guess this would go along with contacts like the liaison, you know, like uh, chapter liaisons would be the person that they would, you know, could contact and stuff to find out, you know, well, I live in this area, so I could be, in, you know, I'd be in this chapter and this, that, and the other. I love it, Libby. Um, by the way, I actually used to live in Lake Elsinore, so I did take, um, <laughs> to make it, I'm very familiar with that. I love the mall over there, by the way, too. So, yeah, it is. So I do take, uh, I li love the idea of, we'll talk to our committee and uh, we'll, we'll and other chapters and affiliates and see what we can come up with. I, I love the idea though. Thank you, Libby. So this is Allison, your Zoom host. We have a raised hand whenever you're ready. Uh, good, I'm ready. All right. Uh, we have a telephone number, 760. I to say, hey, Linda S. Right, Linda. Linda Samoski. Good morning, Welcome, Linda. everybody. Oh, my goodness. Good. I didn't know that you were on um, Media 8. Um, and I just tuned in a little early, and there you were. 
And I was so happy, <laughs> made my day. Um, yeah, she, she's my favorite uh, co-chair, by the way, uh, for the member for membership for IDC. But go ahead. Oh. And congratulations last night for your board position. I'm so happy. I, I love our board. Um, and I know we're going to move forward and progress. But anyway, I do Thank have you. a suggestion. Um, I think that we need to look more outside the organization and do an outreach campaign and maybe contact our local uh, centers who serve people who are blind. And I know that, you know, centers get a little bit touchy about, well, if, if we do it for CCB, then we got to do it for NFB. And well, NFB can, you know, do their own outreach campaign <laughs> and we could do ours. Um, so maybe it would entail calling the centers and then sending the membership brochure or letter or whatever it is we have out to um, the program coordinators so that they know about us and whenever they give out resources, then they could give out our information. Or even um, when clients are in private counseling sessions, if they need uh, a little more support or they need to um, go, you know, they they need more interaction with people who are blind that they could just pull out their flyer and say, hey, there's this organization out there and, um, you know, maybe you'd like to get in contact with them and see what they're about. And so I, I think we should do like a membership campaign like that and, and uh, try to get more people interested in CCB. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> the answer to that is I actually completely agree. Now, some of our chapters have done that. For example, I know with thanks to Leslie, Margie, and the ACB Capital Chapter, they were trying to get King's tickets on Ticketmaster, and it wasn't accessible and on the website. And by the time you called, it was it didn't it they were sold out. That has been changed. And matter of fact, they we will the uh, ACB Capital Chapter Disability Rights. Uh, we all, both had a table at the at the at the Golden One Center, and also the Kings gave us tickets to a VIP suite as well, and let Regina um, speak um, in front of the whole crowd to tell them tell them about the ACB Capital Chapter and CCB. So oh. that's one example. Another example was uh, we partnered with the NFB um, down here in Sacramento, and uh, um, now we get IRA for free at the airport. So we partnered with the um, with the NFB for that. So we do we do that. Uh, yeah, I think we need to do more of it, though. Yeah. Hi, this is Nellie Emerson. Hello, Nellie. And uh, by the way, I used to live in Mead Valley on the way to Lake Elsinore. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm very familiar uh, with with that area, mm -hmm. and um, there are two chapters that the uh, friends in in Menifee can join, and one of them, uh, ABIV, uh, does virtual meetings, so uh, they certainly could be included. But I want I wanted to talk about um, 
a different type of outreach, and that is uh, public service announcements on television. A lot of people watch TV, um, including uh, families of blind people and blind people. And I think that we really need to get with the program. Uh, in the past, uh, CCB did have, I mean, I'm talking a long time ago, uh, we did have some uh, PSAs that were viewed uh, statewide on about uh, 50 uh, major TV stations, and uh, they were played over a period of about five months. I was on one of those PSAs, by the way, riding my horse. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I think that, um, and Ken Collars, the, the, the NASA guy, and, and some other people, um, but uh, we need to, um, you know, look at that. And there's probably some low cost ways of being able to accomplish that uh, and uh, and get ourselves on the air. Thank you, Nellie. Um, like the idea. Mm hmm. Good morning. Well, I have a hard question. No, I don't. Sure. I have a comment. <laughs> um, yeah, who are you? <laughs> oh, I didn't introduce myself. I'm your wife. Oh. <laughs> um, anyway, my comment is that... Still didn't introduce yourself. Whatever we... <laughs> um. If if I did something good, my name's Regina. If not, I'm Joe's wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, my idea is that at every level, including the committee level at the state level, but all the way down to our chapters and affiliates, we have to value our members. And an elephant in the room is those of us that say, oh, this person in our chapter they just want to do social things they don't do anything that's not true first of all that's where they're at for that time that doesn't mean they're going to stay there second of all they serve a purpose if it's to welcome people in to be a part of helping people to stay because they do something fun and don't just always, you know, have serious things. We all know that's important. And as time goes on, we had several people uh, in our own chapter that once they were encouraged and helped along, now anytime we have a phone call to make because we need to call the governor's office or whatever, they will do the phone calls. They They call me and they say, okay, what's the phone number again? And where do I call? And what do I say? And we go over it and they do it. They'll call me back. I made the phone call. And so sometimes just helping people feel valued makes the biggest difference. And any way that the membership committee can do that, and it needs to filter down to our chapters. Uh, sometimes if you're not getting as much interest in your chapter, maybe people don't feel valued. And it might not be intentional because we're all busy. And sometimes we forget to take that little extra time to make each person feel valued. I I have a lot of people in my chapter and I love it. 
because each one of them is special to me in a different way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now we um, almost come to an only got like three minutes left. Um, so, <laughs> well, actually, I think um, I think uh, the the mic has to be ready for for an interview. There. So we had. Do we have any any other people on Zoom? Oh, moment. Boom. <laughs> no, nope, but no people here. On Zoom. Okay. Well, um, Vita, can I go? Okay, we got a couple minutes. I guess. Two minutes. Okay, can do it. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. Ahead. One minute. Um, two things. One is you have a lot of things the committee wants to do, and I make. My suggestion is you set up uh, priorities mm-hmm. because what, what happens is when you have nine, 10 things you want to do, they don't all get done a hundred percent. Right. So right. that's my suggestion, like set two or three things aside that are going to occur in the next year. This just a suggestion. Right. And then the second thing I want to say um, for all of us Thank our volunteers at every meal, at every every meal, any conversation you have with them. They are absolutely wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much. So are the servers. Yes. Yes, I agree. Uh, Yeah, we, yeah, we got to come. And so are the servers too. Thank thank you, the servers. Um, I do want to say thank you for bringing that, bringing that up because one of the, one of the, um, yeah, the the leadership seminar, for example, was uh, was something I think me and Bob had just discussed in, just in passing. Uh, but uh, it, I seen the 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 response um, on the seat on the president's call, so I made that a priority. So we we're going to get to um, some of these, but yeah, that there some of them are priorities. That is a priority. The orientation to me is a priority because that's. I mean, it's if we don't know what a director is, or if we don't know what a treasurer does, and then 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 it's something that we're doing wrong as a whole state. Uh, so that's something we gotta we gotta educate and do more of. So thank you, Vita. Okay, and our we have a well, yeah, we also have artists here. Okay. Uh, what is it? Okay, isn't it eight forty-five already? Okay. Okay, go ahead. Well, artist or Larry? Go ahead, artist. Well, you would have to. You there's okay. You have to speak to the mic. Okay. Uh, you can eat the mic. There you go. Okay, I just wanted to make the comment that I remember. Um, Almost every month, there's an ACB membership focus call, and anyone can join those calls. It's not just for ACB leadership um, people and presidents of affiliates. It's for anyone. And our next focus call is the fourth uh, Sunday in um, um, April. (laughs) It's going to be on the importance of uh, being in a chapter or affiliate. Um, so often I hear people say, well, I can be at large. Well, now people don't have an excuse because there are many chapters uh, throughout the state and country who do Zoom. So you don't have to be near someone. So it is very important to be part of a chapter and affiliate. 
because then you can be more active and get to know a lot more people. So I want to encourage you to uh, be on that call. Thanks. It's the fourth Sunday. I believe it's the 23rd. Uh, it's a 6 p.m. Pacific. The nine, okay. Pam says make sure to say it's 9 o'clock Eastern. Okay. All right. Um, do we have any anyone? Did Larry, do we have a mic back there for Larry or no? Okay. Okay, go ahead, Larry. We are, for anybody who needs to take a break, we're going we're gonna to meet back here again at 9 a.m. Pacific. Before that, I thought it would be cool, and so did Sarah, to have Kenneth Simeon Sr. come by and just chat informally about stuff. Just anything. We're going to get to know him a little bit. You're going to know him tomorrow night. Or, pardon me. God, it's Saturday already. Uh, tonight, even a little more. Kenneth, I'm going to give you this mic. Where are you? There you are. And we still got to worry about turning pots up, et cetera, but we'll make that work. So, uh, first of all, welcome to Southern California. Let's back up. Let's welcome Kenneth and say thank you and welcome to Northern California. Good morning. I'm glad to be with you all today. Looking forward to speaking to you this evening at the banquet. So tell us a little bit about your your journey with regard to ACB because you are now a board member. You're part of DKM and probably a lot of other stuff I don't know about. So tell us briefly in a in you know in a short amount of time. Okay, years ago, yeah. um, uh, after experiencing vision loss and hearing loss, I'm totally deaf in one ear, uh, I went to, uh, I joined a support group in my local area. They introduced me to ACB, so we began to travel to Houston every year. I mean, five years we did, uh, we're members of the Houston chapter, but because of uh, transportation issues, we began to start our own chapter in 2009, so that's been 13 years now that we're striving. We started out with 16 and have grown to 54. And and we are all serving in some way within our affiliate. So I have been a second vice president, president for three terms of the uh, ACB of Texas, Uh, served on the ACB membership committee. So I enjoy what what you all are speaking about today because I think working with artists on the ACB membership committee years ago really helped me out to learn more about ACB. I really enjoyed the Keys to the Convention seminar at the ACB convention. So I'm looking forward to seeing some of you all in Schaumburg this year. One of the things that you're doing now, and the deadline is fast approaching, is suggesting that anybody who would like to get involved with the DKM First Timers Award do that quickly because I believe the deadline is April 3rd. The deadline comes up on Monday, a few days away. Tell us about that. Now, we have two different awards, and these are leadership development awards that we give out each year, and we recognize two DKM first-timers. That's someone who has never attended an in-person conference and convention for ACB, and we will uh, select one person, one applicant from the east east, and one from the west of the Mississippi River, and uh, so far, we've gotten some uh, pretty good number of applicants, and we will begin to interview them and all. But we also have the J.P. Morgan Chase Leadership Fellows Award, and that award can be given to someone who has been serving for a while. Some people may have 
uh, been in leadership before and decided to take a break. It could be for various reasons, employment or even care of being a care- caregiver for a while. So we asked them to even consider applying for that award because you could have attended a, a convention before and still be considered for that award. So the deadline is coming up. We have an online application for the first time this year, and it's you can find that at acb.org on the main page. And I'm here for uh, any questions that anyone may have. My information has been given out several times through ACB Media, and I'm, I'm hoping that we get some great applicants this year. Kenneth, you've been a board member now for just a little bit. Are there some things on the ACB prospectus that you would like to see and would like to strive for? Sure. Uh, when I ran for the board in 2021, uh, one of the things that I made sure that I, I wanted everyone to know that I my chore, personal chore, would be to really help out in sustaining ACB. And that all connects with DKM, the work that we do on that committee. But even now, we have the ACB mentoring program. And uh, we had our first cohort uh, to be a part of a pilot program that began last September and will conclude this June 15th. And we will recognize that group at the National Convention this year. And we'll also have a special reception for them so we can uh, show our appreciation to them for being a part of the program. And then we will also announce the second cohort coming up uh, for the year of 2023 going into 2024. Wow. That sounds pretty cool. And the mentoring program continues as well, correct? Yes, that's correct. And, uh, and about sustaining ACB, uh, the work that I want to do and continue to do when work with our board of directors is to make sure that we are doing some things like your membership committee spoke about today. So I push this all the time. Succession planning is the most important thing. Everything we do, we should be thinking about who's coming behind us and do whatever we can to prepare the path for them to serve well. So I'm hoping that every committee and every affiliate would take the time, if they haven't done so, to develop like responsibilities for the committee, make sure that everybody knows what their assignment is. I believe people serve well if they understand and feel that they fit into where you are trying to fit them in. Uh, it's good to get to know members. I've heard people say that you have to meet people where they are. That's very true. But at times we need to get to know them even better to find out where they've been in order mm-hmm. to help them to share all those abilities and experiences that they have had in the past that might be really good for ACB. I believe it's my goal as president of my chapter to to find people, talk to people, and allow them to be whoever they want to be in terms of position, in terms of volunteering. And if they want to volunteer, I think we could probably have just about everybody in my chapter doing something. And it depends on their life. It depends on what they're doing. It might be something really huge, something maybe not as huge, but it gives them a chance. And I would love to see this convention double in size next year with people who have an interest in it because they're doing something. Yes, we have to care so much about our members that they feel it, they know that they matter, and uh, also try to get to know them so well that you know where they may best serve or fit and give them those opportunities. Uh, Sometimes older members uh, may have to accept the fact that when we get younger people in, we're going to also have to work with those who have families and understand that they may have children at times that may have to even attend chapter meetings. So are we planning for that ahead of time to welcome them? If we want them and we know that there will be uh, 
they will be the group that will help us to keep moving forward in all of our affiliates and even on the national level. So we have to find ways to include them and be open and receptive to their ideas. I encourage all of our older members. I've heard people say, we've always done it this way. Well, some things uh, are changing and we have to move with that change uh, if we want to keep moving forward. So we have to make sure we are open to new ideas. And at times, instead of uh, knocking someone's idea down, offer an, a way to enhance that idea that they have presented. And make sure you take time to un understand where they're coming from. Okay, we have just a couple of more minutes. Uh, and, and because we have in our possessions, Kenneth and I, both handheld mics, it will make it very difficult for you to ask questions. But we will be doing some Q&A tonight uh, at the banquet. Kenneth will be chatting. And if you have questions that you've not asked before, you'll have that opportunity as well. Soon, very soon, we will continue and we'll have our first panel of today. And we will continue on. So um, in the remaining minute or two that we have left, Kenneth, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would just love to get out to people? Wow. Well, I think that we all should try to work better together, understand one another, really listen well to what people are saying, give them a chance to speak before we begin to speak in the middle of what they are saying. Uh, once I heard Regina say that we should let our members know that they are valued, uh, they, they would really feel valued when they know that they're being heard, giving them a chance to share their idea, their ideas and all. So it's important that we begin to care more about one another and, and let it be known that people matter. Everybody is just not our new members, our older members. But one thing I always like to say about our older members, sometimes we're trying, we're focusing on adding new younger members in, but we also have to value, continue to value our older members, pull from their knowledge and wisdom to help us move forward in special ways as well. So, and I always like to tell everyone, as long as you're living and breathing, that's something that you are meant to be here to do. And don't feel sad in your day without trying to find out something that you can do that will be good to help someone else along the way. Then your needs will be met once you give more of yourself. Learn all you can and be a part of the group that will be moving forward. And uh, think positive. I'm going to say some things tonight about that, but uh, I'm honored to be here and so glad to be in your presence. Thank you, Kenneth. Terrific. Let's give him a warm round of applause. Thank you very much. So stay tuned. The next panel comes up shortly. So hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. Happy, happy Saturday. Happy April Fool's Day. Yes, yes. Okay, so if everybody can get a little settled, get a little ready. I am super excited. Hello. Shh. One, two, three. If you got eyes, put them on me. La, la, la. All right. <laughs> All right, everybody, I am so happy to be here to introduce today my friends from the Department of Rehabilitation. I, I'm very fortunate that myself and Chris Fendrick and, and Mitch Pomerantz in the past, we got our, our very own Margaret Bookman-Garcia as well. We get to work alongside these folks here at DOR on the Blind Advisory Committee. And so I'm first going to hand off to the Director of Department of Rehabilitation, Joe Xavier. All right, thank you, Sarah. 
So, first of all, just good morning to everyone here in the room and on Zoom land, wherever that address may be around the, the state and or the country, if you're joining in. Um, just want to start by um, just telling you it's an honor to be here today. Um, I've come to these conventions. My wife is asking me how long, and I said, I don't know, 30, 40 years or so in various capacities. So, very happy to be here. Um, and CCB leadership, Sarah. And Gabe and the rest of the folks, thank you for the work that you do and continue to lead the organization. We need folks to step up in leadership today more than ever before. And I sat in on the membership committee and heard about secession planning. That's real, folks, at all levels in all organizations, um, including government. We have a number of our staff that are here. Um, so we want to acknowledge them. At the table with me today, we have Sue Pellbath. Our specialized services deputy, uh, Peter Dawson, our region director, and Laura Rasmussen, our district administrator. You'll be hearing from them later on in the agenda. So, um, more to come on that front. And then, certainly, um, yesterday we had for those of you that celebrated Caesar Chavez Day, just want to acknowledge that. The other thing I wanted to share with you is if you have not been tracking, the governor appointed Victor Duran. As our chief deputy director, uh, Victor was appointed back in December. Um, joined us in the middle of January. Very, very happy to have him uh, joining our executive team and joining me in leading this organization along with the rest of the executive team as we go through the times that we are in these days. Um, one of the things that I think um, I always remind the audiences of is that when we come here, we get to ensure that you have the information that is necessary for you as an organization to know how to effectively engage with us in terms of what's the environment that is before us, what are the things that are influencing um, the department, and then obviously that also lets you know where opportunities for partnerships exist for you and your respective networks, the local chapters, as well as um, opportunities for the department to engage in. Um, Anna Acton was going to be here. Sarah had invited her to come and do a presentation to include some of the independent living community. I will touch base on that later in the agenda. She unfortunately was ill this morning and not able to come down to be here, but we'll still provide that. So one of the things that I want to highlight here at the, at the outset is what are the influencers that are not only affecting the environment that we're doing business today, but affecting the consumers that we're serving today and really having a major impact on our programs and services. And I'll start by saying that when you hear these influencers, it's very generational. If you're 20, you're going to hear and feel this in a different way than if you're 40 or 60 or 80. Right. But nonetheless, um, depending on where you're sitting and depending on what generation you're in, these will have major implications, not just today, but in years to come, decades to come into the future. So let's start with the acceleration and the exposure that was brought on by COVID-19. It accelerated many things that are taking place. It exposed a lot of gaps. Um, in our society, in our programs and services. We have an environment today 
where person-centered, whole-person approach is being embraced by systems that we never contemplated before, and I'll touch base on some of those later on. We have a reform of how government does business today and certainly into the future when you think about the digital um, approach to delivering programs and services at a minimum, when you think about how we're leveraging remote work these days. We have large systems integration in ways we never thought of before. So for those of you that have been tracking the CalAIM reform and the supports that it now provides to individuals to stay living in the community. And we have an urgency to adapt, to modify, to modernize yesterday's business models to meet the environment that we're in and the environment is going to rapidly continue to change in the coming three, five, seven plus years. One of the things that I have been reading almost nonstop about for the last few months is chat GPT and the implications that'll have on our workforce, the implications it has on services, the implications it has on tomorrow's workforce. And so as Laura and Peter talk to you about some of the work that they're doing, that is a big variable and it is moving very quickly in terms of what the jobs of tomorrow are going to look like. We have a shift in the economic base. Think about what is happening to the inner cities, the retail, how we're doing business these days, transportation systems because people are so remote and the impact that that is having um, on individuals and the impact that it's going to have on the systems continuing to be viable. So let me talk a little bit about the federal, um, about the state level, high departmental level, then I'll hand it off to Sue to talk about specialized services and I'll come back and talk about independent living. So at the federal level, the RSA, the Rehabilitation Services Administration Commissioner, Dante Allen, um, an individual here from California with the ABLE Act Board, an individual with a disability, was nominated by uh, President Biden, um, but he had to be renominated in this current calendar year because he was not appointed during um, the last year. Um, now, we know that um, the president has renominated him. What we don't know is the timing of his appointment to that position. He has to go through the Senate process. So stay tuned to that right now. Um, civil servants at RSA are providing um, the leadership there. Um, this spring, we have the meetings of the National Council of Agencies for the Blind and the Council of State Administrators for Vocational Rehabilitation in D.C. They're going to be focusing on three primary areas. Program performance in terms of the number of people that are going to work and staying at work. Programs fiscal performance, because many, many, many millions of dollars are going unused by the VR programs across the country. And then how each is using data to inform the work that they're doing, to inform the services that they are providing. On the state level, Obviously, we all know that the governor published his budget back in January, and we now know that there's a forecast of $29.5 billion, that's where the B is in Bob, dollars of um, shortage in revenue, and a projected budget gap of $22.5 billion. 
So to address that, the governor has leveraged a number of things, such as extending timelines, deferring expenditures, and sweeping up expenditures that may not have been used, right? And some limited borrowing. One of the things that was not done to address the budget shortfall is use of the rainy day funds. Now, you might ask, well, why would that be the case if they're there? It's in anticipation that we do end up in a recession, and that recession is extensive, which will then require the use of those rainy day funds. At the same time, it's important to keep in mind that the agencies, our Health and Human Services Agency's budget has increased for over 42 um, percent over the last four years, 42 percent increase over the past four years, right? A couple of things that I'll call out in the current budget specific to the agency level. One is that our health care services department is seeking a waiver to provide temporary housing to individuals with significant mental illness. And they're also looking to provide the counties at the county level with the ability to provide temporary housing for individuals with significant behavioral health um, as they are going through treatment. Now, that is not a silver bullet for everybody. But think about this for a minute, folks. For the first time, we're beginning to view housing through the lens of healthcare, right? And yes, we may want it to go further. And yes, there's more conversations to come. But for the first time, we're beginning to view social services and things like housing as a benefit, as an element of healthcare. Agency continues to work through all of its budget levers to disrupt the disparities that exist um, and those that were exposed by um, COVID-19. We continue to implement many of the initiatives that were funded in the last four years, and we continue to look to expand the workforce systems in the healthcare arena. And under the state operations, a couple of things for you to be tracking. One is that we continue to advance the use of telework, remote work, and we continue the process of facility reduction. All that means is we also continue to look at how do we reduce um, the travel costs associated with that. At the government ops agency, operations agency, they've established the Office of Data Innovation. And that is an office that is working directly with departments and programs to modernize how they deliver the services in today's environment with the influencers that I mentioned. Now, all of this means that the legislative process on the budget is underway. A number of hearings have been held, will continue to be held. And it also means that until the legislative process concludes sometime in May, June, we won't know what the final budget looks like. Um, I want to also call out the fact that the governor signed into place AB 1195 this past fall. And the bill affirms um, the responsibility of state government to serve as a model employer. It affirms the requirement of agencies to develop an affirmative action plan to improve the employment of individuals with disabilities. And it clarifies and makes explicit that departments can use what is called a leap-only list, which means they can target individuals with disabilities to hire into their workforce. 
We also have an executive order that was signed this past uh, fall by the governor. I encourage you to have a careful read of that executive order. It is very impactful, has a wide range of initiatives. I'm not going to touch base on all those, but I will highlight a couple of those. One is that whenever a department submits um, a request for budget action, that we have to include as part of that submission how we have addressed the inequities in the respective program and how have we engaged the respective communities to inform the actions that are being taken. Strategic plans need to be developed and will be published by each department on that front. And um, that is going to include language access um, for uh, all the different populations. Um, it, it also creates a commission to address uh, racial inequities that exist within California. And one of the membership of that commission is the individuals with expertise and disability rights. So it's important to recognize how we keep increasingly ensuring that individuals with disabilities are at the table on these very important policy um, conversations that are taking place. All right. So let me shift to the departmental level. So for the 23-24 budget, this is the budget that is proposed. It would start in July 1. Good news is we, at this point, have no proposed reductions to our budget. We have about a 500 bill, or million, sorry, my M's and B's are getting confused. We have a $500 million budget, about a 1,900 um, positions, about 2,000 people are getting checked from the department as part of payroll every year. We did request authority for the grant the transitions sheltered workshops into competitive integrated employment, community living fund, TBI expansion, um, and integrating employment um, into recovery continues to be topics of interest that the legislature has when it comes to our department. So we are also in the process of phasing out the subminimum wage sheltered workshops here in California, right? But keep something in mind when we talk about the sunsetting of the subminimum wage. It has been going on for decades. It's not an effort that started today, right? And the services that the Department of Rehabilitation provides is very focused on competitive integrated employment, not sheltered workshops settings. So we had what is known as the CIE blueprint, the competitive integrated blueprint. That was an administrative action that really um, led to, I believe, in the passage of SB 639. Um, we have through the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, the Career Counseling Information and Referral, also a tool used for that transition and a, and a, a representation of how even at the congressional level, at the, at the federal level, the shift away from sub-minimum wage. So. Um, the phase-out plan was developed during this last year. The Council on Developmental Disabilities has submitted that to the legislature. Um, and again, what I will say here is that the Department of Rehabilitation and Department of Developmental Services commitment to this phase-out um, is longstanding. So supporting this transition is something we're very much um, believed in, right? 
Um, so um, the other thing that I would lift up here is that there are about 4,100 individuals who are currently in a setting that pays them less than a federal minimum wage, right? And so we are going to continue to work over these coming couple of years to transition those folks into competitive integrated employment. We are also celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Department of Rehabilitation. And so Kim Rutledge, our alleged deputy, is going to be uh, leading that effort. And Sue will talk more about this. It also happens to be the 20th anniversary of Specialized Services um, Division. So the other thing I want to lift up here is that um, as part of the equity work that I mentioned earlier, um, we are working um, with a specific population, which is how do we increase the number of individuals with behavioral health disabilities that leave with a job, and how do we ensure that they leave with a job that is on parity? So what I mean by that is that our black and brown communities um, lag behind in earnings when it comes to employment. And so universally, we're going to increase the number of people with behavioral health to go to work, and we're going to increase the earnings that everybody with behavioral health that goes to work has. And we're going to intentionally target our black and brown communities so that they are on par with our Caucasian um, communities. Consumer payment card. If you have not heard, um, it offers consumers now a very easy, really to use payment card. So if, for example, I needed a pair of pants for an interview, I now have the ability to walk into any store that sells those pants, um, pick out the ones that are suitable and that fit me, put the card on the counter, pay for them. And for those of you that have ever had to go through that, trust me, that is a huge improvement over what was taking place. It offers the ability to get books and supplies um, in a much more real time um, and we've been working on this for decades. And it wasn't until recently that our administrative deputy changed all of our thinking from we needed to build a system to we simply buy a service. And that small shift, but rather impactful shift in thinking has brought us to this point. We are one of the first in the country to provide a consumer of the Department of Rehabilitation with the ability to make these kinds of purchases um, just about in real time. Um, and this also means for individuals that have hidden disabilities, they don't have to go to a store and disclose who they are and that they're part of the Department of Rehabilitation and why they have this authorization. They literally can just put the card on the table, um, pay for it, and and be done. So um, let me skip down here to... Um, a, key, a couple of key position updates. So our chief information officer, Jake Johnson, himself, an individual who was blind, was appointed into that position in December. We now have um, new managers within the information technology um, division. We have a vacant contracts chief and a vacant um, human resources chief that we are in the process of filling. Why do I say that to you? If anybody has the qualifications or the interest in working in those arenas, please submit your name, submit your, your applications. We look forward to hiring people with disabilities, but we can only do that when they are um, 
qualify for the positions and when they apply for the positions. Okay, I'm gonna take a deep breath. I'm gonna hand this off to Sue Palebath, um, our Deputy Director for Specialized Services. Sue? Thank you. Ah. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you. All right, I get to do the fun stuff over here and talk about all the latest and greatest that's happening with Specialized Services. And of course, the biggest celebration this year is uh, the anniversary of SB 105. Okay, SB 105, yay. Specialized services exist because of SB 105 and a lot to celebrate this year, right? So um, in my division, we have five sections and one of those, of course, is deaf and hard of hearing services. And in celebration of SB 105, they'll be getting together, all of us, to celebrate that. And it's planning to be in Anaheim in the fall. And they're gonna um, also do their SB 105 annual training. Um, OIB, Older Individuals Who Are Blind Grant, um, um, intent, notice to, notice to, oh gosh, I always get this wrong. We are going to announce the notice of intent to award next week. Um, I don't know any of the results, of course, um, but so excited that we can continue providing those services to older individuals who are blind. And I'm one of those folks, just in case you don't know that. <laughs> Um, one of our biggest changes in specialized services is the redesigning of the training program for the business enterprise program. As Joe was mentioning, you know, the, everything's changed about um, the workplace, about employment, about what work looks like, all of that has changed and it's kind of come through COVID. So those vendors who managed to survive the COVID shutdown, I mean, kudos to those folks. And if any of you are here, congratulations, because what a challenge it's been for all of you. And so what it's also done for us is we've taken a good hard look at how we train our future vendors because it's changed doing it the way we used to do it and getting people ready for that workforce and that world of work and um, providing food service, that's over. And so everyone, our team and the vendors currently and those future vendors need to learn how to come up and get prepared for that experience and, and to, in order to be successful, excuse me. So we've hired a new training officer. His name is Mark Leva. And um, currently we're working on completely revamping and redesigning the curriculum for the training program and hoping to vet our future vendors, our consumers from BFS here, who might want to be independent business owners and yet arm them with the skills and abilities they need to be successful. And that includes a lot of um, assessment, skills training, work experience, work experience, work experience, right? All of our vendors have agreed to become employers for potential consumers who want to be vendors as a work experience opportunity. So we see that as a big thing for them. All right. Orientation Center for the Blind. It's ironic. I usually want to forget that place. That's where I came from, but it's kind of weird. Um, OCB continues to um, serve the same number of number of consumers annually, but through the a smaller group cohort system. Uh, OCB also offers a two-week mobility boot camp, which is 80 hours of mobility all in two weeks for students that the Blindfield Service Counselors send up for that training. 
Um, OCB is also a work experience site for all consumers with the department, not just those folks who are blind or visually impaired. <clears throat> and those work experiences are in groundskeeping, food service, custodial work, and also um, some office assistant work to hopefully get some people that experience they need to see what they might want to do and how they handle the pressure behind going to work. Um, as a matter of fact, that's been one of the biggest topics in the last couple of years is about work experience is a priority for our department to get our folks um, to put them to the test, I guess it would be, and get them the experience so that they understand what work looks like and that the counselors can work more closely with those folks to get them the skills and good work habits, habits necessary to go to work. Um, um, by the way, Joe and I are going to take questions once Joe's finished speaking about independent living. So if you have questions, start saving them up because I do better with Q&A as well. Um, now, blind field services. Sorry, I got too close again. Jeez. Um, you know, I'm going to let the experts of blind field services do their thing later. That's Peter Dawson and Laura Rasmussen. And I think the greatest... Um, regional um, business specialist um, on the, who's on the call, um, Nancy Ibarra. They're going to do their thing and share all the successes and what they've got going on in BFS. So instead, I'm going to kind of shift gears here and say that between Peter Dawson and Laura Rasmussen, we have more than they bring more than 55 years of experience in DOR, and they have managed to evolve and change and embrace the innovations of the department and all the up and coming initiatives and all, all the differences and changes that keep coming up. We know that the workforce is fluid. It's not, it's not solidified and that um, we need leaders like them. <clears throat> also, I couldn't do my job without them. Oh my goodness. Um, and then one final note about that, for those of you who don't know, in 2006, I went to the Department of Rehab for Services, and my first counselor was Laura Rasmussen here. <laughs> and so I'd like to give her credit because, honestly, I'm here today because of how she got me on the road to success. But I also am so grateful that I get to work alongside of Peter and Laura. So thank you, guys. <laughs> I keep getting too close. Sorry about that. All right. And now I'm going to send it back to Joe, and I hope you have questions for us in a few minutes. Sarah will be oh, asking. Fine, <laughs> well, I'm the agenda, sorry. Yeah. Okay. AB 2480. We had, I think, was a very, very um, fruitful um, community forum where we had so many of you and many of our community partners and our consumers all joined in in a call. And I think what we were able to, what, right now we're working on solidifying how we're going to deliver the services to those folks who are 18 to 55 who need independent living services. Um, and we don't, we haven't um, solidified how we're going to deliver the services yet, but we have a pretty good idea. I think the consensus, and I think Sarah would agree, was very clear on what we'd like to see happen and as well as how we'd like how all of you would like to see us handle that. Um, do you have a comment about that, Joe? No, we can take any questions. Okay, yeah. Cool. Okay, then. All right, I'm going to throw it back to Joe. All right, so let me jump into um, 
to the independent living. And I mentioned at the outset, what are some of the, the influences that are taking place? And we talked a lot about systems integration. Talk a little bit more about that, because I think it's it's really not only where we are, but where we see society going. And so um, Sarah, um, as she mentioned, has been very active both with the Blind Advisory Committee, 2480, and of course, a number of other things. And so um, thank you, Sarah, for asking us to include that in our conversation here today, and certainly I'll speak to this. And then, as Sue said, I'd love to get into any questions that folks um, have. So let me, first of all, just talk more broadly about independent living, because when we talk about independent living, it, it's really a, on a number of different fronts. It's independent living centers, it's older individuals who are blind program, it's traumatic brain injury, and a number of other programs on top of that. And essentially, they advance the Olmstead decision, which means that individuals with disabilities receive services in the least restrictive, most integrated setting that is possible. And it means that it um, supports individuals from being diverted from going into institutions and then facilitate the transition out of institutions for those individuals that have become institution. So um, there are 28 independent living centers with some 60 locations um, in California, serving just under 27,000 um, individuals annually, right? And this past year, they served um, 600, um, 1,600 individuals who were blind or visually impaired. 417 individuals were transitioned out of um, institutions and 600, almost 700, are under the age of 14 that are receiving services. 12, just over um, under 13,000 or over the age of 60. Right, so this is a, this is a, a system that is serving the full spectrum of ages of individuals um, with disabilities. So the independent living community, independent living centers, um, received funding on a number of different fronts from the American uh, Recovery uh, Rescue Act um, funding. One is to expand um, public health support services within the Traumatic Brain Injury Program. Um, to expand public health workforce through the independent living centers and to expand um, the public health workforce through the Assistive Technology Act programs, right? And then independent living centers also received a range of direct funding from the federal government to address the needs and unmet needs of individuals, particularly through the COVID era that we're in. And for those of you that may be tracking, VR was not the recipient of any of the um, American Re um, Recovery Act funding um, that took place. Let me talk briefly about the Aging um, Disability Resource Connection. And if, if I'm remembering correctly, we can have Susan here later to talk about the master plan on aging. So this will be a little bit of a forerunner. And I think when you hear about the master plan on aging, you'll see how a lot of this stuff so very much links together. So the what we call ADRCs began as a state and federal partnership to establish no wrong door into getting services um, that are necessary. 
Here in California, the ADRCs are led through a partnership between a AAA area agency on aging and the Independent Living Center and includes a wide range of partner organizations. So when you think of no, the no wrong door concept, it's essentially think about, I come in for a service, I need a service that is in another system, and I'm being connected to that system to get those services. In California, we have 17 ADRCs that have been established, and we have eight um, that are emerging. We have 26 of the 28 independent living centers that are in the ADRC um, connection partnerships. So um, we have also the traumatic brain injury program, and there are um, about 12 providers with some HCBS funding that we received that are serving 35 counties across the country, right? And the services there are also at diverting individuals from institutions as well as keeping getting individuals or institutions out of those um, institutions. And all of this is a, an element of the long-term support services program. Um, I'm sure Susan will talk more about that today. Um, but let me talk specifically about the community um, living uh, program, right? The community living Fund it. Okay, so what is it? The Community Living Fund was $10 million that was allocated to really focus on a couple of different things diversion from institution, transition out of institution. But in addition to it being part of the long term services support in the master plan on aging, um, it really is aimed at being a bridge to help individuals transition or get out of institutions where the other systems, the other programs may not meet that entire need, right? So what might that look like? Well, think about somebody who's on Medi-Cal but needs a service that Medi-Cal may not cover, right? Or think about somebody who was just outside of the range um, of being eligible for Medi-Cal but is also at risk of being institutionalized. So all of this funding is aimed at focusing on that population, and it is aimed at um, developing the capacity of many systems. This is not just independent living centers. This is independent living centers. It's um, the area agencies on aging. It's TBI centers. It's OIB centers. So this is funding that is available to anybody who is working with that population to get them out of those um, those types of settings. So um, let me, so I talked about this. Let me skip down here. Okay. Let me talk a little bit about integration and inclusion, and then we can open this up for questions, right? Because if you heard me mention this in several different ways, um, this community living fund, I think, is another example of this because it's a, it's a fund that you have to be working with so many other systems in terms of meeting the whole needs of that individual. So we know that true systems integration is really being approached in ways that we just have never seen before, right? Um, and it's really becoming more and more prevalent, both in policy as well as in allocation of fundings. That to be eligible for the funding, you have to be engaging and coordinating with services across systems, 
right? And frankly, it's just if you think about the basic concept of person-centered and whole-person approach, there's not one single system that can ever meet the whole needs of any one individual. And I don't care how we restructure these systems. It'll never happen, right? So the question becomes, how do we start looking at this more holistically from that person-centered lens and approach that? And we certainly know that we as uh, individuals who are blind and visually impaired have long advocated for every system to better meet the needs, um, our needs, and certainly the needs of other populations. And so today, these systems are embracing this in ways like never before. Earlier, I mentioned Cali. There are some 13 services that were previously deemed to be social services and thus not eligible to be covered under healthcare. Well, under the CalAIM reform, those services are now seen as part of healthcare. Those are services that recognize that the health of an individual living in their community can be greatly advanced when they receive those services. Now, that can look like overnight success here, but there's no overnight success here. This is decades and decades in the making. But what it means, what it means is that these systems need the expertise, for example, of knowing how to serve somebody who is blind and visually impaired. That expertise has to be brought to the system, such as managed care, right, so that they can lean on our expertise in delivering those supports to that population, right? And one of the things that I think is important for us to recognize is that this is not a carve-out for individuals. It's a carve-in of ensuring that the expertise, that the population is truly being served. Now, we're seeing this in workforce. We're seeing this in education. We're seeing this virtually in every system, right? And when you think about this, at the end of the day, and when you talk about true integration inclusion, what are you talking about? You're talking about systems that have a universal design so that they are usable and can benefit everyone, regardless of how they come to that system for services. So I'm going to stop talking there. Um, Sarah, I don't know if you guys want to offer some time for questions, but we're certainly glad to take some if, if desired. Um, I do have an announcement. I forgot to say something, which is totally typical. Um, SB, there I did it again. What is the deal here with me? Um, SB 105 is going to be celebrated at the Orientation Center for the Blind. And that's on July 14th, an all-day open house. Everyone's invited. Um, we're going to put on our best <laughs> show we can and have a more sort of an experiential um, opportunity for folks, especially those folks who don't know how we who are blind do what we do. Um, but it's also just a beautiful campus, an opportunity to get together and celebrate that great day. Do we have questions? Yes. All right. So if there are any questions, raise your hand and somebody is going to either run to you with a mic or if no, Mike, you can repeat, you can say your question and I will repeat it for the benefit of everybody in the room and those that are online. Okay, we'll start with Zoom. People in Zoom land, any questions um, you'd like to ask? We have no raised hands at this time. 
Sharon, do you have an object to line the top one? Why? What you kind of growing the bar as well as 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 the bar as well the White House is asking how I see the CalAIM services um, wrap around with system services such as OIB might be providing, right? So really good question, Sharon, um, and I hope I got that close enough. Um, really good question. So he, here's the way I look at this, right? First of all, I've never met an OIB director who said they had enough money, right? Um, so, and I'm not being flip about that. I mean, that's just the reality. So then the question becomes, all right, if healthcare now provides for a range of services the individual needs, then the question becomes, how does Sharon, who is an OIB provider, look at that and say, all right, I got services three, five, and seven that I can get for this individual through managed care. And so she's able to work with managed care provide the services that that individual is eligible for, paid by managed care. And then maybe I need service number, number eight, which is not paid by managed care. So now, Sharon, it doesn't have the, the financial burden of providing all of those services out of OIB. She's only providing one of those out of OIB and the others out of um, the managed care, the healthcare system. But the beauty of that is that I, as a person who's getting those services, you know, to the extent that Sharon has partnered with managed care, I'm getting those services still from somebody that has that expertise in serving people who are blind and visually impaired. But here's the key to this, right? One, until managed care partners up or or Sharon, I'm sorry, Sharon, I'm just using you as an example. Mm -hmm. So until Sharon partners up, to until Sharon partners up with managed care, they're not they're not going to know who Sharon is. And here's the other thing: if Sharon doesn't develop that relationship with managed care, at some point, managed care is going to build out that expertise. And once they do, good luck cutting into that, right? So that's why I so encourage this. But here's the other reason that I think it's um, invaluable. One. I always say follow the money, right? Follow the money. I mean, folks, even if we add another million dollars to OIB, it's not even close to what what's might be necessary. However, the managed care system has many, many, many more millions that can be leveraged, right? So that's why, I, frankly, for me, I am very excited about the opportunity for other systems to fund, to provide the services that individuals who are blind and visually impaired have long needed to continue to live in their community. So thank you for that, Sharon. That's a really good question. Sure. 
All right, so Nellie's question, I'm going to paraphrase Nellie's question. Nellie's question is, now that there's this funding available for these services through managed care, how does an agency access those services, and how bureaucratic will it be? Right? Okay. So, first, let me talk about what these, what these services, sort of where this money comes from, Right? So remember that when you talk about managed care, you're talking about CalAIM reform, what you're talking about is Medi-Cal. And Medi-Cal is through the Center for Medical of CMS at the federal level. So there is a litany of requirements in terms of using Medi-Cal dollars and the associated billing. So that's not all in California. I know that our colleagues at Healthcare Services are very focused in helping community-based organizations to be able to lean into how to how to deal with that navigation, how to do that. And it's it's interesting. I was having a conversation with um, a provider in the community not too long ago who was really thinking outside of the box and said, I'm good at delivering services. All that billing stuff gives me a headache. I'm going to use a third party to do that billing for me. Hello. And I thought, whoo, now that's strategy at play. But the way, but again, the way that is to access, going back to using Sharon as an example, is because Sharon establishes that partnership with managed care. Managed care sees Sharon as a partner in delivering those services, and then they develop that inner working about how will referrals be made, et cetera, et cetera. So it must, it will require, it's not going to be through the Department of Rehabilitation or healthcare services, it's not gonna be through any of that. It's gonna be between the local community-based organization and the managed care plan in terms of establishing the partnership to then be able to leverage it in delivering the services. All right, Julie. So I'm just a little confused. So how are we gonna figure out, like if, let's say we establish this care with Calain, how am I going to figure out when I'm going to be billing DOR or when I'm billing CalAIM? Well, that, that'll be easy, okay? That'll be the easy part about who do you bill, right? If you're billing, if you were providing a service that you want funded by managed care, then you're billing the managed care plan. And by the way, you're not going to be billing CalAIM. CalAIM is the... Um, sort of the terminology, but I get your point. You're going to be billing managed care, right? Can you give me examples on the services that we would be billing for the managed care? Can I? Yep, go ahead. I, think I, had, one, I had one more question about HCBF. So um, when it comes to CalAIM, so CalAIM is different um, across the state. Um, it goes with, through the managed care plan. So it could be HealthNet, it could be Anthem Blue Cross. Um, I have to say that I'm, I'm really proud to say that Valley Center for the Blind is the first blindness agency that I know of that has applied and got CalAIM funding. Um, we also um, look at uh, the whole person. This keeps getting louder. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, and, and what happens is you have a person who gets Medi-Cal. So that person gets Medi-Cal and 
So you look at if they need any transition or diversion services. So when we think of somebody who's blind, maybe that transition or diversion services, they need some AT training or maybe possibly, and I'm not sure how this looks, you know, maybe they need to go to Hatlin or OCB or whatever it may be. So you put together a care plan um, that is very specific to that person and their needs and then you submit it to the managed care system and they um, either accept or reject it. And that's how that one works. Does that help, Julie? Okay, awesome. What's your other HCBS yeah. question? Before before you go to that, let me add a, a couple of things here. I think at the heart of these questions, something that is really important for us to, to just think about and, and come to grips with. I, at the outset, I said that one of the influencers that is very much at play is how so many systems are having to change their business models. And so I think that at the heart of these questions about particularly when you're looking at leverage managed care is you can't think about that you're going to be doing the things that you've been doing in the same way in a different system, right? Community-based organizations, for-profits, Everybody is having to rethink what's the business model that works in the environment that we're in today with the influencers that are at play, right? And so that's an important distinction to be made because the idea that we are going to go to managed care and say, well, this is the way I deliver services in OIB, so that's the way I want to do it, not going to happen. And again, as part as I mentioned before, it's not because just managed care is being a stick in the mud. That's not that. It's there are requirements that flow from the federal government on how that money can be used and how the invoicing and all of that must take place. Right. So rule number one for me, and trust me, Sue and the rest of the team here will tell you, we have been um, deep in this. How do we rethink our business models? How do we rethink the way that we um, approach delivering and getting services paid for in today's environment? Okay. So, Joe, I think there's a gap that needs to be recognized here, though, yeah, they can. In, in all the what you have just laid out. Um, there are a few um, OIB programs like the Lighthouse and Dale McIntosh, a couple of others, that are similar in Dale McIntosh's case it is, but there are a few OIB agencies that are similar to ILs and ADRCs in the sense that they have a lot of resources. But there are many, many OIB agencies that don't. And I think we know there's a way to get some assistance through DHCS and learning about this process, but these agencies are going to have a really tough time without some assistance by somebody, and I don't know who it should be, whether it you know it needs to be a, a, a council to sort, sort of help the way through, but if we're really serious about system integration, and Joe, you've been preaching this for a long time and not doing too much about OIB itself, but preaching system integration. If you're really serious about it, we need to help these agencies figure out how they can actually access those Calian dollars. Jeff, I couldn't, ooh, Lord, I couldn't agree with you more, Jeff. And you are correct that there is a Department of Healthcare Services that is 
the state's Medicaid, Medi-Cal directors, right? They're the ones that everybody works through, have done a number of things. One, they've been holding many, many forums to make people more aware with a lot more detail than I'm offering you here. Two, um, they are providing funding to help their local the community-based organizations to develop um, these transitions and to figure out how they can better partner with the managed care systems. So a lot of this is out there. I know that Sue and the team have continued to share out when those forums are taking place so that people can take advantage of that, right? So, um, and I'm sure more will come because it's not just, um, Jeff, to your point, it's not just OIB, but clearly OIB applies here. There's many other organizations that are also in the same boat of it, like, how do we, how do we do this? Do we have any hands up on Zoom for questions? I believe this is Linda. Yes. Uh, yes, it go is. ahead. Hi, good morning. First of all, I want to say hello to Joe and Peter and Laura. Linda, I'm Linda Samolski. Um, and I'm not sure if this question is appropriate at this time, but I do want to get it in. Um, it's kind of twofold. One is, what is the criteria for serving people who are students who are dreamers? And my second question is, um, we know that adult education for ESL learners has been very inaccessible in the past, and that is a path to employment services. So what is being done or how can we help um, make adult education more accessible for uh, ESL lear learners who are blind and vision impaired? Thank you. Right. Well, thank you for your question. I'm going to look to Laura and Peter to include that when they do their presentation. They're going to get deep into the services that Blindfield Services provide. So I'll, I'll, when you guys do that, you'll, I'm sure, address those questions. Okay. Any other hands up in the Zoom, please? Not at the moment. Thank you. It's my HCBS question. So for HCBS funding, um, do they have to have a dual diagnosis? Do they have to be part of regional center also to get that funding? Um. I'm not sure what HCBS funding you're referring to. So earlier when I talked about um, the HCBS funding, I'm talking about traumatic brain injury. And so the, the traumatic brain injury program received $5 million of home and community-based services funding that came to California. And so that is specifically for individuals um, with traumatic brain injury, um, and they may... I don't think they're regional center consumers because if they are, they would have access to all of the services through that system. Okay. Am I right about that? That's what I think. I think yes. Sue was saying yes. The Community Living Fund? Yeah. Is that what you're no. Yes. Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, the Community Living Fund, that, that the eligibility for that is if you're a Medi-Cal recipient. It's a service you would need that Medi-Cal does not cover when it comes to transition or diversion, okay? Or if you are, I think it's a 300% um, 
of the federal poverty level. So in other words, you may not be Medi-Cal eligible, but you're, you're less than 300% of federal poverty level, so you'd be eligible for um, the Community Living Fund Transition Services. One more quick question. This is Eric Skyvers. I just was wondering if you would repeat the uh, location and date for the AB 105 20-year celebration, please. Oh, SB 105? Oh, oh SB 105. It's okay. <laughs> um, oh, mom is just like not digging that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, SB 105 celebration at OCB will be on July 14th all day. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Sarah, I'm going to um, ask the Zoom room again because I was getting text messages that they couldn't chime in. So I'm going to ask again, are there any hands up in the Zoom room? There is one. Maureen. I had a question about self-employment and um, I'm a person that's trained visually impaired, trying to do my own business, you know, tutoring online remotely because I'm also a caregiver for my parent. Um, I'm wondering if uh, there's funding available for people who have business plans and have a model of what they want to do. You know, I've outlined because I have education background and a teaching credential and, you know, a lot of skills, but now I have a unique situation where I need to work more remotely. Uh, is there funds available for people that have their own business models? So I'm going to, um, again, look to Laura and Peter to include that. They're going to get really deep into all matters, employment and blindfield services. And I think they'll they'll certainly touch on self-employment as part of that. I did want to make just one quick comment. We're in this world of hybrid. And as I mentioned, there's such a generational piece to this. But, you know, kudos to CCB to lean into this place and lean into this whole space of trying to bring us together. Um, both in person, we obviously benefit from that, and remotely for those that can't be here. There's nothing easy about this, folks. But here's what, here's in my mind, here's how this plays out. Where we are today to compare to March of 2020, beliefs and balance. And it's my uh, humble opinion that where we will be in three years or five or seven years when it comes to this hybrid way of engaging will equally be leaps and bounds. So I just, one, kudos. Um, this will all get better, folks. This will all get better as the systems evolve and our in our own practices about how to do this remotely evolve. Um, this is the way of the future, in my opinion. So thank you. It's about inclusion. Yeah. yeah. My name is Laura Rasmussen, and I'm the district administrator for Blindfield Services. Um, with me today is Peter Dawson. Um, he's the regional director. So the way this works is Peter is the one that leads BFS. Um, I'm the one that makes sure it keeps going. So he kind of drives and I make sure the car works. And um, then we have some other amazing staff along the way. So I'm going to give you some background. I, I just do feel like a little bit of history is good here. And then we'll hear from Nancy about how uh, BFS business services work. Then back to Peter to talk about um, the future and who knows what, because he's been known to go rogue on us. Um, and so it's definitely worth waiting around to hear him speak. And then Jamie from Valley Center for the Blind is going to be talking about some great um, employment stuff that is going on there. So it's been, I've been in this position for three and a half years, but, you know, because of COVID, really haven't had the opportunity to interact with a lot of you. Um, 
So just to give you a little bit of background on myself, I actually uh, grew up legally blind, grew up in all those systems that we have for blind kids, um, the Camp Bloomfield. I did all that kind of stuff. Uh, went to college, got some um, some low vis- some visual uh, correction that allowed me to function in in the my and the uh, the low vision range. Uh, and then the I should say in the high partial range. And then a few years ago, going like ten years ago now, uh, was able to get some additional medical stuff that actually got me more vision. So you look at me, you think I see perfectly fine. That's still not the case, but definitely more than I was before. Um, so anyway. My point is, I might look like I can see fine, but I do get your eye, totally get where people are coming from. Like I've told people, I've been all over the vision scale, a visual, you know, big E all the way down. Well, not to 2020, but, you know, Um, anyway, I want to give you a little bit of background about uh, what, why I have this passion I have right now with DOR. I actually was a DOR client back in the early 80s. my mom took me to DOR because somebody told her they might be able to help with college. Um, the gentleman that I talked to said, yeah, we're limited money right now. Here's a bank draft you can use every semester. Um, and I will be quite honest, in the early days of my work with DOR, there was assistive technology, but they could be quite stingy about it. Um, so people didn't, and, and AT was very poor. I mean, um, Peter reminded me that he used deck talk to go to law school and I have no idea how he did that. I think I would have uh, pulled all my hair out. Um, but you know, life, you know, we go forward and my kind of mantra is now is we're not your parents DOR, you know, when your parents went to DOR, maybe you, but, uh, we, it was all about just plant, just providing services, hoping for the best. Now we're planning for the best. Um, and it's it's a kind of a two-way street because Sue tells you how wonderful DOR services are, which is really makes me feel good. On the other hand, when she walked in the door, she was ready for um for more. She actually puts it put in a lot of work to this as well. She said, I want to work. What do I need to do? Um, we planned out a school program, all that kind of stuff. And by the way, Sue and I have had the discussion. We're okay with sharing about each other's experiences, but she put into this. So that's what I want people to understand is that, um, yes, DOR provides great services, good customer services, hopefully all the time, but it's also a matter of people being understanding when they come to DOR, it's about work, maybe not work tomorrow, but it's about work. Um, we have had just a tremendous, um, change actually in the way that we provided services. If you are interested in DOR services, if what we say means something to you, this afternoon, you may go out to the DOR table and somebody will help you to apply for services online. Or you go home, go to the DOR website and go onto our portal, apply for services. Very simple, write in your name, phone number, you know, where you live and that you want to work with somebody who's experienced with working with vision loss, that will be sent to uh, one of our team managers will make sure that you are contacted um, as soon as possible. So that's that's a huge change. Remember the days when there was the application, it was mailed out, it had to be sent back, somebody had to help you sign it. It was ridiculous. So that is one way that we are, are improving our services. Um, now you can do your initial interview and meetings over the telephone or Zoom or Teams or in person. Um, so we have many, many different ways to serve you. Um, we have um, our services are are all designed to be directly um, related to a vocational outcome. 
So again, we do the expanded vocational preparation services, um, including labor markets. So uh, we definitely need for individuals to see that we are working to get you a job at some point. We are not about, yeah, we do train you people. We do. Um, but we are not going to um, train you to be an underwater basket weaver because there's just no jobs for that. Okay. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's why I do it because there's some jobs that it's like, it sounds ridiculous to some people, but that's the reality. And, and we want to make sure that there's some success, that you have that option, the opportunity for success, the best opportunity. We now have our business specialists working with consumers as you walk, you know, as soon as you walk through the door, almost, you know, within a few weeks, you can be talking to somebody about what the labor market is like in your area. Nancy's going to talk about that a little bit more down the road. We also offer work experience. Joe mentioned it. Work experience is, to me, it's not technical, but it's probably one of the best things to come along to DOR in forever. Work experience started out with the students. The student, because of WIOA, required that we spend additional time with students, time and money and energy. What work experience does is allows the individual to go to a work site, get work to, on a job, get paid real money, minimum wage or better, on that job, and learn a skill. Um, so that's what we do from the student end is more about learning the skill. From the adult end, we have that same experience, but it's a little bit more about work, um, you know, understanding that when you go to work, it's going to be about, you know, public transportation, if that's what you need, and figuring out um, something about accommodations and figuring out what's right for you. Um, there is hopefully an aspect of learning a skill, but it's just about getting some current work experience. It's real work that goes on a job application. And as you know, that's often the case with the blind that have not had any work experience. It's not uncommon for us to see a 30 and 40 year old who's never worked. And if you've never worked, you don't understand what the world of work is like. So we get, we have these opportunities and we can make them almost anywhere. Um, so again, I'll let Nancy talk about some of those placements that we've done. Um, and Joe talked about the CPC card. Um, that basically is, like I said, a credit card. My day, of course, I went to the bookstore with a bank draft. The person would say, I don't know what, sometimes they would just cash it as a trick. But then they got to the point where I don't know what this is. You got to go stand in this special line over there, which was embarrassing enough. But for me, I couldn't go to the bookstore with my friends and pick out the books that I want and walk through the door. And so not only could I not do that, I'd have to explain why I was going by myself to do it. With the with this new card, the individual goes to the bookstore, picks out their books, shows, gives them that credit, looks like a credit card, processed, end of story. No one even knows that it's DOR. I mean, it does say DOR in small letters on the card, but your friends aren't looking at that, right? So these are ways that we are elevating the experience so that people are gaining independence because that is an independence thing. Now, and we actually focus on for some of our younger students that are our younger individuals that we serve. They've never had an experience with a credit card. They don't, you know, so that's part of our education as well, that financial literacy. Um, and that's, we're developing that with some other programs right now that should, we should be able to stand that up any, any time now. Um, so that's one of the, uh, that's one of the nice um services that we're with. Um, assistive technology, we are able to do that earlier in the plan than we have. The last, ever since Peter took over, that's been a piece of cake. Um, it's true. I mean, it's difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's a painful process for everybody, but 
again, back when I started, uh, when computers became a big deal, I had leadership saying, well, they could go to the library. You know, they can go to the assistive technology center. That doesn't work. It doesn't work that you get an hour on the assistive technology at the lab. Now we get students and individuals that needed that assistive technology, um, you know, as soon as we can. Um, and we can do it, you know, it depends on what it is. It's, again, it's still, we still unfortunately have state processes that we have to go through, but we are working on breaking some of those barriers as well. Um, somebody asked about um, self-employment. Um, self-employment is an option. Um, self-employment does involve a lot of work on your part. I will be quite honest um, because we look at how successful the plan can be. But uh, there is a lot of support for that. So that's something that I would encourage you to speak directly with a counselor about. Um, you know, we need to show that, you know, there's a reasonable chance that it's going to be a success. And we do unfortunately have some limitations. Uh, we can't fund everything related to the business, but we are, uh, we can be a good resource depending on what you want to do. But that is definitely something I would talk on an individual basis about. Um, with your counselor. And again, we have a couple of counselors who are outside today at our booth who could, you know, maybe help you with some of the little bit more of the, the questions you might have. Um, let me see. Um, I get the chance. This is my exciting part. We get, we, um, I don't remember if Joe talked about this specifically, but we have a state internship program that's available to individuals that have developmental or cognitive disabilities. BFS is showing up to that table too. We have an individual right now who's doing a state internship. That internship is paid. Um, when that internship is over, they will be eligible for LEAP certification. So there is ways, these pathways into state jobs are becoming better and better and better. I mean, some of you might remember that a LEAP certificate back in the day was only good to be a janitor or a groundskeeper. That's not the case anymore. Um, we've had business, we've had many levels of LEAP certifications going through, and it's been a huge advantage to Blindfield Services and to consumers going to work because they actually, some of them actually come work for us. We actually have a lot of interns right now um, that actually, it's really exciting. People are actually seeking out internships with Blindfield Services. Um, so we're able to start training people as counselors before they even come to work for the department, which is really exciting back in my day. There was no interns. There was no there was no graduate assistance. Um, some of our internships are paid. Some are not paid. That kind of depends on funding. But grad students need to do internships, um, so they are seeking us out. Um, they do want to work with individuals who are blind, which is good. You know, people aren't afraid of us anymore. Um, I, I we have had some amazing successes in blind field services. We lead the way when it comes to income. Um, across the rest of the state. Our, our, our years go from July to July. So for the last fiscal year, our hourly wages were $27.39 across the state. That's We closed 370 people successfully, and the average was $27.39. Uh, the weekly average was $863.89. Again, our district blindfield services is higher than any other district in the state. That's consistently been the case. Um, and we actually continue to do that because for the first nine months of this year, uh, our average wage is now up to $28.25. And our average hourly, or, or, sorry, our average weekly wage is up to $891.04. So 
we are doing extremely well in that point. We are also, like like Sue said, we're standing up BEP again. And um, let's see, somebody had a question about ESL for a blind user, and I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to get back to that one. Um, but I would like to turn this over to Nancy Ibarra um, to talk about some of the ways that Blindfield Services helps um, get get the um, <laughs> tongue tied. How Blindfield Services helps um, identify vocational goals and some of the other programs that we've got going. And Nancy is the lead business specialist. So while she doesn't supervise the, the four other business services, she leads the way in providing the training. And she's had just amazing results. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. Um, this is something new and fun and amazing that we're able to zoom in. And um, first of all, I want to start off with my name is Nancy Ibarra. I am the regional business specialist for Blindfield Services. Um, I have... Um, black glasses, black long hair. My background has a San Francisco bridge. Um, hopefully I can go visit the bridge soon. I think it's so much fun just, you know, exploring the great parts of California. Um, my pronouns are she and her and I'm excited to be here today. So let's start off with what is a regional business specialist and what is it that I do? Well, first I cover the entire state of California. And I work with our amazing nine units in Blindfield Services. I am housed in the Norwalk office in LA County. Go Dodgers, LA County. Um, so super excited to be here. And um, I work with a business specialist. We have currently, we have four. Um, one great neat thing. Well, I think there's a lot of neat things about being a business specialist or regional is that we provide dual customer service. We work with consumers and businesses. Um, we work with the businesses on the work side, side um, any support that they need. But we work at the front end as well, like Laura and our team has shared, uh, Sue and Joe um, and Peter Will as well. We work with our consumers one-on-one. Um, -on -one. So I think it's really neat that the way we continue to lead is by providing dual customer service to our consumers and to our businesses. And along with our teams, we have that collaborative effort that we're able to work with all counselors, um, all service coordinators. So it's really neat to be able to have that partnership on a statewide. Um, our business specialists currently serve all nine units. We have coverage. Um, and one thing that our business specialists are able to do is provide that local level support. Um, they're able to cover the areas that they're housed in, um, and I'm able to support all business specialists statewide, whether it's a windmills training, a disability etiquette, or they just need a case staff, a consumer who's interested in um, going into a field and we're able to partner up and find some labor market that supports that plan that they're interested in working in. So um, our business specialists develop labor market plans to inform consumers and do our staff when creating plans. We want to make sure that there's going to be a job uh, for our consumers when they complete their training and education. As business specialists, we want to make sure that 
they're also getting great paying jobs. Like Laura just shared, the hourly wage is $27.39. I think that's so amazing because we're showing the value and the work that our staff is doing when we're seeking for employment and we're creating these plans. Um, again, like share, uh, Laura shared, this isn't your parents' deal, Laura. This is a new um, way of working together and finding and seeking employment. Um, a creative thing that DOR has done is partnered with foundations for California community colleges through adult and student paid work experiences. We have both student work experiences and paid adult work experiences. Um, when I first got hired with the department, I realized one of my struggles that I had with working with both was they had no work experience to put on their resumes. And we know the value and the importance of having work experience on your resume. We only had education and training on your resumes. And I think that as the department keeps continuing and moving forward and working in innovative ways um, by providing paid work experience, that's something that we're able to really uh, work in ways of what best fits for our participants, whether they're students or adults, and our businesses as well. Um, so if you hear me say FCCC, that's just a short way of saying foundations for community colleges. Um, so one thing I do want to share with you is that student work experience under FCCC rolled out about three years ago. And when it rolled out, um, it was very scary for a lot of students. And when I say scary, it's because a lot of our students uh, were really scared to actually start working. Um, FCC, which Foundations for California Community College, is an employer of record. And DOR partners with our consumers and finding work sites. And the consumer shares with either the business specialist or the uh, service coordinator or the counselor of where they want to work. We want to make sure that they're able to gain valuable work experience at a work site that they will enjoy working and also getting paid for it. Um, DOR plays a huge role in being a timekeeping supervisor. Um, what the timekeeping supervisor does, it approves timesheets, approves I-9s in a system called Workday. And we also follow up with businesses to ensure that we're supporting businesses and all needs as well. Currently, we have two timekeeping supervisors for student work experience, two timekeeping supervisors for adult work experience. And the neat part about my role is that I'm able to take part in both. I am the only one in, um, in the state that has access and that is really hands-on with adult work experience and student work experiences. Um, usually there's different timekeepers for each district. So why do I share that with you? I share that with you because about three years ago, like I shared when student work experiences rolled out um, and the fear was there for our students, um, our students were really fearful because they, did, they thought they were going to lose their benefits, um, the fear of getting out there and working. Well, one great neat thing that we were able to do is refer them to our work incentive planners who have those conversations with them that they're able to provide and share that great feedback that they can do the work experiences and they will not lose their benefits. 
Um, so it gives them more of a comfort and understanding of what they're getting into. And BFS has really led the way. We have done 12,300 hours under student work experience. And the valuable work experiences that our students have worked in is in customer service, food service, retail, libraries, dispatch, office assistant, uh, teacher assistants, um, and also, too, BFS has the highest in the state work experiences. So it's really neat because it's something that I really do value so much. Um, and students that are the ages of 16 to 21 are considered our student work experiences. And now that we have adult work experiences, when they turn 22 years old, we can roll them over to an adult work experience. Adult work experience through FCC rolled out in October of last year. And as today is April 1st, um, we have worked 1,500 hours. And I think it's so amazing to see that we had interest in some of our students who aged out and continuing to want to work. And the interest that is there for adults who have never worked. And we're talking about adults who are interested in working in the healthcare area, food service, retail, education, customer service. And we even had someone working in a radio station, which was so neat. It was so exciting. Um, so it's so nice to see the value that the department has vested and partnered up with our consumers in providing that quality work experience. Uh, feedback that I've received from students and adults about this work experience. I'm really hands-on. I love to talk to our consumers. Um, you know, they normally still send me emails or a phone call, and I love to hear from them because I love to uh, have feedback and, and share that with our teams, is that the physical activity that it involves in waking up every day, getting ready, going to work, the social connections that they had, the daily structures that it gave them, and the fun extra money made a huge difference to every consumer. And that's why uh, every year I'm always reaching out to our um, to Peter and Laura and to our executive team for more hours for student work experience because our students are always coming back and wanting to work more and do more. So it's really nice to see that our new generation moving forward is interested in working and that we're setting the tone and that our adults who have never worked now want to continue to work because they appreciate the social connections and the structure that they weren't part of before. Um, because that's what a work site and a job does bring to everybody's um, everyday lives. But do you want to know who else I've breaked barriers with, which is so interesting because I'm a mother of two. I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son, is parents. Um, yes, parents. I had a conversation with uh, a mother when I first rolled out the first student work experience. And this mom was so angry with me because she was sitting in my office and I asked her son, where do you want to work? And she said, are you serious? My son can't work. He's blind. And I thought to myself and I said, okay, so I have to break barriers with consumers. Um, I have to break barriers with businesses. And I also got to partner up with parents and break these barriers because 
um, they don't want their, their, their children to work. And I took that very personal because I wanted to make sure that everybody had a different lens, a different view, a different scope of what we can all do together. And this is so important for the student and for his mom and for myself to be having that conversation and seeing how important and how valuable work really is. And that just because you do something differently doesn't mean you can't do it. We all do things differently. And I think sometimes parents need that reminder as well. And I wanted to go into a success story because I know that I shared about breaking barriers with parents as well. And it's kind of like that food for thought that is left um, and friendly reminders of when consumers come to our uh, to a DOR office, we look at them as a whole. We, we, we are there as a we. We're not there as a they. Um, it's really something that we want every consumer to bring back that when they're interested in applying for services or when they refer an uncle, a mom, a dad, a cousin, a friend, a neighbor, a brother or sister, that we're seeing it as a we, as an opportunity for all of us to continue to grow and give back. It's really important that we see it from that specific lens. So with that, the successful story that I love to share with you um, started off with Miss N is a first-generation daughter of parents who immigrated from the Middle East to California. Soon after she was born, it was determined by the medical staff that she was legally blind due to a congenital eye condition. Her parents did not accept this and constantly told her that she needed to pretend that she could see. So she and her mother suffered from long-term domestic violence, verbal abuse by her father. Her father told her that she was damaged and nothing more than a mistake. This led to a lot of emotion and trauma, mental health issues for which she would need treatment. Her mother explained the pain was part of life. When her father began to arrange a marriage when she was 16, he told her not to let her other know that she was blind because she was a broken child and she was disgraceful. He told her that it was his duty to make sure she marries and makes a happy husband, raise children, and stay home. She did not agree. So she decided on her own when she was in high school um, to connect with Blindfield Services, the Department of Rehabilitation, when she was 17. As a high school graduate, she came closer to to domestic violence, and she began fearing of her life. She started planning a way out of this home situation. The day she turned 18, she ran away to a shelter for battered women and never looked back. Her parents disowned her and did not have it in her to connect with her. So she instead relied on herself and adopting others into her life, including long-term relationships with BFS and DOR. BFS has a sister through college and a master's degree in social work. With books and supply, independent living skills, training, devices, assessive technology, training, the use of a computer, and reading print material. Orientation and mobility with a white cane, and then came a service dog. Interview clothing, counseling guidance, job placement services. 
She obtained a job as a case manager for veteran services in Los Angeles, where now she assists homeless veterans. She rises early at 3 a.m. to make it work on time, um, and her shift is from 7 a.m. to 3.30. She works full-time and earns $56,000 a year with benefits. She's extremely satisfied with her job and the services from Blindfield Services, and she can now continue to move forward and create and have her own family. Um, this really touched me because, like I shared, I am a mother, um, but I'm also a daughter. I'm also a friend. I'm also a neighbor. So once again, when our consumers come to DOR, we want to make sure that they feel like they can have that conversation and that we really want to make sure that we ensure and provide them with the labor market for those job opportunities that are out there. Once a case is closed, when they're successfully closed, that doesn't mean they're closed and they're done. It's literally the beginning to a new journey. It's a beginning to a journey where they're going to continue to have more relationships with their coworkers and with life and become a taxpayer and continue to move on. So with that being said, um, I will pass it on back to my regional director, Peter Dawson. And it really has been such an amazing pleasure being here with you today. And thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. I know we've been sitting a long time. And uh, I want to save time for Jamie, who's next to me, uh, who will tell you about some specific people that she's placed and what's important in terms of uh, what they need to do in order to get placed and great, uh, get a great job. So I'm going to keep my comments relatively short and uh, so we can get to Jamie and open it up for questions and answers before we break for the lunch. So uh, thank you, Nancy, for sharing that story. Uh, I remember that story, and it moved me as well. And uh, and I was so happy that the people she got connected with in BFS were able to get her out of that mess she was in and to lead her own life, which certainly wasn't the one her parents wanted for her, but that's the way it goes. Sorry, parents. And uh, and I. Um, you know, when Sarah Harris asked me to come to this, uh, I first of all, I appreciated it, uh, even though I realized later that I was going to be on a plane this afternoon right during my Aztecs Final Four playoff game. So um, that shows my devotion to you all. I just want you to know that. And yeah, so uh, I... You know, I was thinking what to say. I changed my notes based on everything Joe and Sue and Laura already said, because I, I, like I said, want other people to tell you some other things that I think are important. But I will say this, uh, you know, what are we here for? And like Laura said, my job in the last three and a half years, the regional director is a relatively new position. It's been hard for a lot of us regional directors in the 14 different districts, BFS being one of those, to kind of let go of our old job as the district administrators and let people like Laura do all those hearings and personnel issues and problems that it, it's hard for me to let go of that, believe it or not. I thought I would just love to get rid of it, but it's it's really hard to let go of those old things that you're used to and to start something new that we've never done before is a brand new position and and it's it's hard to switch but we're getting there 
And uh, my goal really is to connect and uh, collaborate with and develop relationships with a lot of the mandatory partners under WIOA, uh, which includes, of course, like the American Job Centers, which I won't go into detail with, but uh, they are an important partner that I'm much more connected to now than I've ever been before. But also with the partners in, in California, and in my mind, who is best going to be able to help me, help my staff, help our consumers, which are about 5,000 of them we serve each year, uh, get the best jobs possible to live in this expensive state. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of us don't want to leave California. I know people do because they have to, but I'd rather allow them to live here, make a livable wage. And buy a home if possible when the rates come down and, you know, uh, raise a family if they want to. And then after, you know, you work with the benefits and the time and energy you put in, do things like Ralph Black and Dr. Campisi, who I saw yesterday, go to some of the same places I've been, but a bunch of others that I'd love to go to. And enjoy that. I mean, that's part of this, too. And the Department of Rehab's, you know, logo says employment, independence, equality. That's really what it comes down to. We're about employment. I know you all know the WIOA, uh, you know, Sunshine, the homemaker cases in 2016. That wasn't our, you know, call. That was the federal government. And they emphasized students. Uh, we have to spend a uh, 15% of our entire budget on those students, 16 to 21, which personally I agree with because that is the future and uh, of what we're trying to do to change people's uh, lives. I'm not saying the other things aren't important, uh, you know, in retirement, but to me, it's all connected. And um, I know a lot of you are here and you heard about 2480. And uh, how we can maybe uh, replace some of those things for some of our older blind that uh, obviously we were in favor of that, too. But we're following the federal government's rules. And pers my own personal interest is employment, but also these other things are important, too. So I know a lot of the people that I need to connect with in the state. It's nice to hear today. Sharon, I look forward to meeting you. Uh, Laura and I. We're going to go on a road trip soon to reconnect after COVID, which was really through everybody for a loop. I don't need to remind everybody about that, but what is this? The first time you've met in three years? Yeah. So it's the first time I've, uh, you know, been on the road in three years. A lot of staff have changed. A lot of the new directors like Sharon are new. Uh, you know, uh, nice to hear Julie here. I know Steve and Savannah are here. They're partners with the Cal ATSD assistive technology. That's a huge part of, you know, what we deal with. And um, all these relationships, the better, you know, those are, sometimes they take in person like this to, to reestablish those. I, I'm sick of Zoom and uh, no offense, Nancy, but I... Uh, and having to be on the computer all day long, and there's a dynamic that happens when you're in a group of people, if, even if you can't see, I know you know this because you're here, uh, you know, that's different than when you're just on a yeah, on a screen and uh, or on a phone. So I, uh, you know, my goal 
you know, ever since I was 18, I was in a motorcycle accident when I was 18 and my career was set. I was going to be a naval, you know, pilot. I had already been accepted and then bang, right before graduation, I was in this accident. It's like, what am I going to do? And I think about that all the time because one thing I've learned as I've gotten older uh, is how much, uh, it, not easier it was for me, but my life, uh, I had a lot of support. I grew up in a pretty well-to-do family. Dad was a surgeon, six boys, and uh, in a nice area, good schools, all that. I realized how many of our consumers just do not fit that mold and how much uh, I was blessed for what I had and the support I had and the jobs I had when I was a teenager. I talked to Joe all about this, you know, over the years. Uh, I learned to love work when I was a a kid. My grandfather taught me how to mow yards and stuff. So, uh, and I thought, wow, money's nice, you know, you can buy all this candy and stuff. So, uh, and then it goes on, it goes up from there. And so I was thinking, how am I going to work Who's ever going to marry me? How am I going to buy a house? You know, and I want everybody who's blind to still have that dream. And it's not going to be with a minimum wage job. I look at the other states and things across the country and their, you know, their, uh, what their average wages are for placements. And Joe and Sue know what I'm talking about. And when I look at, you know, minimum wage, which is a lot lower in those other states than it is here compared to, you know, 28 bucks an hour for BFS, I think we're either at the top or close to it in the entire country of any district anywhere in terms of how much uh, uh, money we're giving, you know, to our people to get where they need to go, to live a rewarding life. And uh, otherwise, yeah, I'll just be like, I'll sit home and just collect my benefits and listen to music or something. But I didn't want to do that. I don't want that. I want more. And I want our consumers to want more. And, uh, you know, Joe is a Joe to me is very inspirational. He didn't have it as easy as I did. He always tells me, I'm just this little foreign boy from some county down who knows where in San Joaquin or something. And, uh, and I said, yeah, just a little foreign boy. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but he did, he didn't have it that very easy. And I watched Sue and I saw her in the hallway and, uh, and how good she was and driven and organized and a mom and, uh, you know, a wife. And just like I said, Sue, you might want to check out OCB. They got that. You'd just be really great. And look at her go, you know, uh, she's inspirational to me and uh, everything she did uh, growing up. And, and Laura, too. That's why I hired Laura. Laura grew up in a visually impaired world that I never had to deal with. Uh, you know, I was just like a dumb jock, you know, playing basketball and stuff and track and uh, and everything was going my way. And uh, so I always have to keep that in mind. I try to. I don't think there's a more responsible job than a counselor, you know, in this field. I really don't. Uh, I worked for a big law firm and I had all these huge multi-million dollar clients. I, I just never dealt with any humans. It just all oh, millions of dollars everywhere. I never felt like I was really contributing to really much of anything other than just a bunch of legal briefs and things. And I just, so when I switched, I went into this field, I realized the power that somebody can have. And when I see somebody not prepared or able to do that as a counselor with their consumer and have the knowledge and expertise they need to know, or at least even the interest, you know, uh like what can i do to help this person out i it really bothers me and uh 
I was just having dinner last night with one of our managers. She's got the first person she's been able to hire as a counselor in like 15 years as a manager. I couldn't believe that. But this person has, uh, you know, been in rehab for 15 years, but they don't know anything about BFS. And I was very uh, impressed with what she had that person go through in the last month and what she thought they had to know in order to be a productive, good counselor. I saw Ed Crespin. Anybody know Ed here? Oh, you know, one thing I love about Ed is uh, Ed, you know, ever say oh, he has so many questions. Yeah, he does. But uh, but, you know, they're interesting, good questions. He pushes me to be a better leader. He challenges me. And although, you know, uh, I feel like I'm a little bit of a boxing match sometimes. I, I like it. I'm competitive, too. It's like, OK, what, what do I need to know? But Ed. I will say one thing about Ed, after all these years, he's like a young kid still in terms of his advocacy for his consumers. And uh, I give Ed a lot of credit for that. And uh, because I know he's looking out for his consumers, whether they're a kid in high school or, or older. And I give you a lot of credit, Ed, for that all these years. And I know uh, I keep hearing uh, whispers of a retirement stuff, but I know Ed probably doesn't really want to retire. I know. And because he loves what he does, for a good reason. He's changing people's lives. My first counselor was terrible. I hated that guy. So, uh, and he was ready to retire. He was so dang grumpy. He didn't ask me anything. And he just, what do you want to do? And here's a talking calculator. Go to statistics. Like, you said you wanted to go into business. Really? You know, I, uh, you need people who understand uh, or need to have an interest as to what you, you how to get to where you need to go. And um, so that's my job. And uh, Laura, Sue, Joe have been extremely supportive of me and flexible. That's one thing that shocked me about state government is there's a lot of flexibility as long as you stay within the rules in terms of uh, trying to, you know, get where you need to go. And that's what made this job good. I I have got a slow start in this new position, but I look forward to gathering momentum and trying to get the resources through the various CRPs out there I mentioned and the AT and everything else uh, to make it better uh, for the Californians who are blind and visually impaired, get to a place where they feel like they're part of society on an equal playing field and, and, and have those lives, like I mentioned, with the house and the family and everything else, if that's what they want, to live a fulfilling life, you know? Uh, that's not just some low-level thing. And um, so I'll leave it at that. It's, that's, I look forward to having more discussions with you all uh, in the future on my road trip. Sharon, we're coming to see you. And nice to hear Julie here. Nellie has been a fabulous advocate as well over all of her years. Nice to hear your voice, Nellie. So we're all here, I think, for the same reason. Who else? Trish. Trish is here too. Hey, Trish. Yeah, another one of my superstar managers there. She's always been right up there, too. I'm I, I realizing all the people here feel the same way I do, I know. So I'm going to let uh, the next person speak before we open it up, because I'm curious to hear what she has to say, because uh, we wanted somebody on this panel when Sarah talked to us that, you know, uh, like we had at SB 105 a few years ago, Um 
tell us from a business perspective, you know, who are they hiring and why? What do you need to get hired? And I've heard some things in the past when we've had some job placement people for blind only. We've sent them, they, we say, yeah, they're ready to go. And then we get the, this, this uh, feedback. No, they're, they're not ready. So let's hear from her in terms of uh, what it takes to be ready. Uh, and then we'll have questions and answers, if I remember that right, Sarah, uh, for our panel today. And I wanted to thank you all for your commitment to uh, what we're all trying to do. And I appreciate uh, you all and being here and keep up the great work. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jamie Gibson Barrows, and I am a proud employee of Valley Center for the Blind in the Central Valley. Woo! Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, we covered Kings and Kern County, so all of our clients are within those, those markets, and then everything around it in the rural areas, you know, east and west as well. So. Um, we are a, a CRP or DOR and we've been around, well, just, uh, our 50th year anniversary is this year and it has evolved from the day that it started into where it is today. And I'm just going to kind of focus on the last three years. Um, not that I should just miss anything prior to that, but we pri our primary jobs were training, independent living, Braille, AT, O&M, and ILS, which is independent living skills, and getting people uh, trained and ready to go to work. Um, and we did that for quite a few years, but then we found that we are uh, spending all of this time with our clients and uh, we're finding that they're not, once we're done with them, they weren't being very successful um, getting jobs when we thought that they were ready, or at least they were trained enough technology-wise independence to go out there and be able to uh, obtain a job and, and retain it. So once we found that it wasn't and working with the Department of Rehab, then we started offering um, employment services through our um, office. Um, my position there is the employment specialist. Um, we started working on this project and placing people in 2019. So we've just about had a three-year um, practice on this. So, um, so let me go back a little bit. So the employment services, in order to ensure that they're actually ready, the first thing we do is what's called an intake. Um, the intake allows us to have those conversations, see where they are, and are they truly ready to go to work? You know, have they addressed barriers that perhaps uh, that was missed or they didn't share with any of their instructors or their DOR counselor, those types of things. Um, then we're going to go ahead and then we're going to do our prep. And then if they're, if they're job ready, then we're going to go through the prep phase of it. And that includes resume building, um, advocacy for accommodations, um, a lot, a lot of role playing for interviewing. Okay. Because a lot of people who have worked, you know, they have uh, interviewing skills, but they have, they don't have interviewing skills as a person of, uh, who is blind now, because some of them were working as fully sighted and then now their world is different. So being able to address that. 
Um, and then a big thing for us is the benefits counseling. And we work with the Department of Rehab on um, referrals to the work incentive planners. And uh, we give them the basic information because that's one of the biggest fears for individuals with all disabilities that are on Social Security or Social Security disability um, that I can't work because I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose what I'm used to. And I'm like, you could get along with that $600 check. Really? Don't you want more? You know, so and and it, it's a myth. So they work partner. And once they're educated um, and it takes, you know, one client at a time and, you know, they get buy in and they have that education and that understanding with the WIP counselors and the basic information we provide. And then that fear goes away. Um, then once we get to through the prep, um, we go to the job development phase and that's resume and uh, enhancing their resumes and the jobs that they're um, applying for. And then once we get them placed, then uh, we go through a job retention and we I stay in communications with them um, uh, once they are placed, and that includes um, short-term support. If I have to go out there and help advocate for them, ask for accommodations, talk to their HR, anything that I need to do to help and assist this individual to maintain and, and, and get this job, we're going to do that. Um, but before we get there, a lot of times we will do what's called a vocational assessment. Uh, we will do that prior to our intake, um, and that helps us and um, Department of Rehab uncover, you know, what are their qualities? What are they capable of doing? Because, again, like they were saying earlier, a lot of individuals have never worked before. Or they worked, and then they lost their sight, and they haven't worked for 15 years. Um, and then going through, you know, those phases of vocational. We have situational assessments that we help with um, to DOR. So we do have clients who have multiple disabilities. Um, and what are their abilities? What are they capable of? What can they do? And we work together and, and uncover those um, so we can make recommendations to the DOR counselors on what might be the best ways, uh, areas for them to work. And then, of course, we have our professional communications. Um, and all of those together helps us get into the actual placement and getting ready for work. The other thing that we've also added, uh, just like they were mentioning earlier, is adult work experience. Okay, they were talking about the student work experience and then the adult work experience. And I believe that's our newest. And I'm not sure if we hit our one-year mark on that or not. Um, but it's doing the same thing is is giving these individuals uh, work experience. Um, I have one client who is uh, was a homemaker her entire life, never worked. Um, and we put her in a, an adult work experience. And now she's in a second adult work experience. And it's pretty much changed her life around and her perspective about herself, what her abilities are, and that that she can work and get a sustainable job. And so she's working really hard on that as well. And um, let's see, 
Another thing that we're working on is we have developed a workforce development within our organization. And that also came out about 2019. And with that said, we are out there and getting partnerships and within our community, our local and federal government, NIB and Ability One. Okay, so we're out there working really hard to get some of these contracts and partnerships to employ internally um, off of these contracts. And uh, the last I was told, we have hired upwards to 40 individuals under these contracts we've been doing and uh, getting agreements with. 98% of those employees are blind or low vision. So that's a very good success story that Shalina and um, Ray have been working on, and we've been successful with those placements internally, and primarily it has been um, call center type work, telework, and which has become, of course, very popular because you don't have any transportation issues, right? So... Um, so we've had that. And then as far as with the Department of Rehabilitation and working, uh, we feel it's, it's sad, but it's, it's, it's success that this, this year so far since October, we've placed um, 11 individuals into sustainable jobs. And that seems like a, a small number. We've just pretty much started. However, it was zero for many, many years. So I think that we're on the right track. We have work to do. We're growing a lot. Um, right now, through the Department of Rehab, I have, between employment services and adult work experience, I have 44 clients that are all enrolled that I'm working with right now. So I'm, I'm going to get all of them a job, I promise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think that's kind of the... The basics of it, I mean, there's a lot more involved into it. I don't want to take a lot of time, you know, because I want everybody to be have a chance to have their Q&As. So I'm going to send it uh, back to you, Joe. Joe's gone. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant Laura. <laughs> sorry, Laura. It's okay. I called worse. Um, all right. Do, does anybody have any questions for any of us? And the lady who had the question about ESL, Nancy's going to give her my email so I can work with her later on that. I didn't just brush her off. Okay. Okay. So for those of you on Zoom, if you could raise your hand, anybody in the room, if you have any questions, um, please raise your hands and somebody will find you as well. And we'll start off on the Zoom platform. Do we have anybody with their hands raised? We don't have any raised hands right now. No. Okay, thank you. And you don't have to ask a question. You can make a comment. Um, we're here to listen. Okay, is there anybody in the room that has any questions or comments? Yeah, this is Peter Pardini, and I have a question via my wife. What can be done to increase the speed of obtaining Adaptive equipment for job employment. I mean, it seems to be currently a five to six month process, and it just that's just too long. We and agree. it's been really, really affects yes. 
employment when you don't have the proper tools. Yeah, we we agree. Okay, we're not. Uh, we we totally agree. The the issue is that there's more than one issue. Um, there's really that's there's it's a multifaceted issue because. Some people need assessments, and if you need an assessment before you get to the AT, there's additional layers in there. Um, if there's some problems with supply chains, there's issues there. We have some manpower issues right now. We are working on a few changes, kind of bucking the system for what we need to do um, to be able to move those things along faster. Um, we do hear you and know that we meet regularly to try to make things better. Um, we are, uh, we've already implemented some systems to move our authorizations along more quickly, but there is, there's one component of it, which is the bid process for the state of California. And yes, we have the Cal ATSD website. We have a lot of these things in process, but there's still requirements for having a, uh, um, the, um, quote has to be within 30 days. If it goes outside of 30 days, we have to get a new quote. There has there's seller permits. There's all these kinds of things that have to be in place before something can be actually authorized. So we do hear you. Um, it ha but like I said, there's more than one issue going on here because of the multiple layers that get involved um, with this. But if there is uh, and if there's something you feel like that we can do faster, better, I understand the process of the authorization might be a little out of before also getting. Huh? Appropriate equipment training too. Uh huh. So uh, that's a whole nother whole process. But I mean, it just I mean, wife's ready, ready to get it, ready to go to work, and she just needs to get her equipment lined up, and so that she she can proceed with her life goals. Right. Uh, right. She happens to be. In and if you want to chat with me afterwards, I can give you my card and we can okay. go over the specifics and see where there might be a hang up. Like sure, I said, I'd love to. I, I, I'm honest with you. Unfortunately, that's a it's the process is not what it should be, not what we would like to see. Um, and we are working on it. Please, please know that we are working on it. We do know. Yeah, I'd like to get your card and I'll pass it on to my wife. Absolutely. Unfortunately, she's unable to be here today. Yeah. And you know, it's it's just yeah, and we are look and some of the things like training, like assistive technology training. There were some uh, we are. I'm trying to encourage in our staff. We do know it's really nice to be able to train on your own equipment, but we have a lot of CRPs that have equipment that the individual can go and at least start. Because if you can start training on your own, that's a huge help as well. But not everybody has that available in their neck of the woods, kind of a thing. So, um, yeah. So I I, I apologize. I. I know it's a problem. Anybody else have any questions? Yes, there's one here. My name is Yomara Diaz, and my question is uh, in regards to when can um, young teenagers start the training of ILS? My son is 17 years old, and he's already enrolled in DOR, but uh, because he's still in high school and he's getting some support from the county, um, they keep holding his uh, ILS training a little bit. Um, he might be enrolled in the summer programs, but my question is, um, how can I get that started for him? Because his goals are to go, it, he has a goal to get into the university straight and he wants to go somewhere else. He has glaucoma and I am the parent and, and he only has his grandma, which is my mom. And we're worried about that transition that he's going to have uh, and where he's gonna go 
to be honest, he's not that prepared. Um, uh, and I don't want to stop him, you know, just keep him near me uh, because he has very great goals there. But uh, that's my so my concern. If I understood your question, you're asking how soon can we start ILS? On, yes. And was there a specific area of ILS you had a concern about? Uh, yeah, everything in relation okay. to becoming independent in yeah. you know, cooking and everything. Yeah, okay. So I heard you mention um, the summer programs. Um, a couple of CRPs have some excellent summer programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they are funded by DOR, but the, the CRPs do an amazing job of you know, starting some of those processes. Mm-hmm. And the reason I asked about ILS, because that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes students, you know, they, they, they don't want to learn to cook. They want to learn how to make mac and cheese and that's it. Um, that's from my own college students experience. That's so, uh, yeah, it's just, anyway, uh, the answer is, um, anytime that we can make the services work. So again, it's a matter of communicating with the counselor, what specifically you feel that individual needs as ILS. Um, sometimes it's a matter of working with a CRP locally, like maybe they go to classes at the, at the, at the, at the, at the uh, CRP. Sometimes it's things like going to one of our residential programs. We have three. Uh, we have the Orientation Center for the Blind in Albany. Um, that is run by the Department of Rehabilitation directly. Um, that's the program that Sue used to be a, a, the administrator over. We have um, the Hatland, we actually have four technically now, the Hatland Center in um, in uh, Palo Alto, uh, sorry, San Pablo, that does an apartment-based program. And we have... Um, we have Wayfinder down in the South that has an independent living program as well. So those three programs, the individual will go and live there and learn independent living skills. And sometimes um, it's good to take that year off or six months off between high school and college to get those skills. Um, I know that kids are often anxious to go to college, but uh, the success rate is better if they take the time to do that, but it's such an individual choice. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also used a few out of state, but for the most part, our needs are met with those three programs in California for in terms of residential programs. Can I at least they uh, go for a couple of weeks? Um, could that help also? Well, it depends on the program. Most of them are set up to be by the, by months. Uh, OCB has a 12 week program. Um, that's, uh, they start every 12 weeks, they start a new cohort. So that's probably the shortest one. Um, but again, that would depend on the need because everybody comes in in a different need. And especially a high school kid really, you know, even kids that have full vision don't know how to necessarily know how to mop the floor. So, um, they might not even realize they have that need until they go there and start talking with other people. And the other advantage, uh, um, if somebody wants to do that with the residential programs, is they meet other people who are visually impaired. And that gives a huge vote, a huge boost to confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and in my experience, yeah, I've been training, receiving training for so many years, and I'm currently uh, a client, um, a, consum- a consum- consumer of door, and I'm through Cove, I'm receiving more trainings. Um, I had my first job as a massage therapist, but then I had to change it because of um, health issues. And now I'm, I really don't know what to do or what to do next because I cannot okay. continue doing any massages. So I'm, I, I'm almost done with the basic training of what I'm doing right now through the agency and um, this association. 
That's great. Would That's I great. Know what else I can? Um, I, I want to get hired, you know, to the goal to get a better wage um, and all of that. Um, and, and that's that's what I want to see who who I can reach to get more advice and yes. And thank you for bringing that up. Um, you mentioned that you were at a job that didn't work out or wasn't working for you. Now um, we have um, under W. We've always been able to do retraining, but mm -hmm. now under WIOA we are encouraged to do advancement and employment, um, and that's kind of in place for maybe somebody wants to go work at a you know maybe they get a job as a secretary, um, and they do that job for a couple of years, and then they want to do more. Um, you know, it's a very typical way to go um, is people start off at lower paying jobs, you know, get that work experience and then go to other jobs. So if somebody would say they'd worked a couple of years at a relatively entry level wage job and they want to go back to school at that point, those are services we're doing now as well. So um, we are, uh, we're BFS. I, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I've become very competitive and we do a really good job with things like you know, the college and career kinds of things. Um, um, but getting our new, getting these services where people can actually start at an entry-level job, come back later to come back for advancement is really game-changing. And, um, you know, because we've been kind of doing it all along, that's the reason our numbers are so much better than the rest of our state in terms of incomes, because we have the opportunity to train people in a way that, that uh, gets them good jobs. And one of the things, um, sorry, I, I am digressing a bit, but one of the things one of us was going to cover was, so we've actually had people uh, go to work as doctors. Uh, yeah, we've had uh, that were helped through, that were consumers of blindfold services. Uh, we've had somebody who went to work as a medical researcher. He had an MD. Um, so we're having success at many, many levels. So any other questions? Or raised hand in Zoom. Deborah Armstrong. Um, I have not been a DOR client since the 1970s, so my rehab knowledge is deprecated. But I work at a community college, and this question is about helping my blind students. Um, here's the scenario. Um, the student will typically tell me that um, they've taken our access technology training, which is excellent, and now they want to get their own computer and start looking for work. And the rehab counselor says, oh, I know your dad bought you an iPad, so we don't need to buy you a computer. Well, they cannot be successful in college without having their own computer unless they want to live in our lab and do everything on our lab computers. And that's not really fostering independence or the ability to show an employer that they can use a computer. So how can my students convince their counselor that they truly need to get a Mac or a Windows computer and not just an iPad, which is not appropriate for college? Okay, so that's a very, very specific question, and it, it distresses me to hear this, but um, did you or somebody give you my email or phone contact, and we can work this, I can figure out where the problem is and go from there? Because well, it's a trend. I, that's my concern, is I've seen this trend over the last five years, and that really concerns me. Because right, and it may, yeah. Community exactly, college is cheaper but, than university. So there should be lots of money left over since they're not paying university tuition to buy them some of this equipment. And I'll go back on mute. Thank you. Yeah, we we do not ration services. So there's not an issue of there's not enough money. Um, our issue is, is the, uh, is the equipment needed to get to their employment outcome? 
So if anybody, that's why I say, I want to talk with you offline. Um, maybe Nancy's, Nancy's on Zoom. She can give you my contact information and I would be happy to chat with you because it shouldn't be a trend either. And, um, you know, I will confront that directly. And yeah, Peter's laughing because he knows I will. <laughs> for the right yeah, for the right reasons. I, I, like I said, every time I speak, I hear something like that, and I go back, assuming I can find the problem, and most of the time I can. We have a dialogue, so um, it is it is not about rationing services. Um, so definitely, if you could, if Nancy, if you could give her my email, wouldn't off, you know, offline, or or if you get it from Sarah, Sarah can also give it to you as well. I'd be happy to talk with you. Just, you know, say, hey, I'm, you just send me an email saying you're the one I talked to at the conference and uh, we'll set up a time to talk. Yeah, type it in the message. Yes, thank you. Just a quick message. Anyone? Um, other, I think there was some. Yes, this is Leslie Gibbons. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm a provider of technology. And uh, I really want to recognize the hard work that the Blindfield Services field staff and the purchasing team do. I see them daily working so hard to process a really large number of requests for equipment. But sadly, their efforts are being severely hampered by one or two others who insist on adhering to rules and regulations at the expense of common sense, effectiveness, or efficiency. And my comment would be, Perhaps we should ask those people to do their jobs without their equipment, and maybe that would encourage them to see their responsibilities slightly differently. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Leslie. We have another one in the back. I just wanted to give a resource for the people who are waiting or need a computer. Computers for the Blind, formerly a longtime organization, they currently have a grant program. So you can get a fully equipped laptop for $50 with all of the adaptive technology on it that you need, JAWS, Fusion, everything on it that you need for $50. If it's certified by one of the agencies or by DOR, there's no other paperwork to go through and you can get that relatively quick. So it's computersfortheblind.org. They're a partner organization. I've worked with them for a long time. In fact, I got my first computer as a blind person from them. So um, just a resource. It's great and a $50 laptop. And these are great laptops. They've been all refurbished and have all of the software on it. So, and thank you for your presentation. Yeah, I know we're going to wrap it up now, and I appreciate it. And uh, I just wanted to say one thing with a comment somebody just mentioned about rationing services and a story Ed told me last night, which uh, disappointed me about a decision that was made and that the reason they did not bring it to appeal it to the manager, Ed's manager, was because the fear of retaliation or other repercussions. I've heard that a lot over the years. And if that ever happens, uh, you can always call Laura or me to staff it if you want. But remember, the uh, there's the client assistance program uh, through DRC still. And they're really good, you know, uh, at what they do. And they'll keep your, you know, anonymity, if that's what you're asked for, at least in the beginning. And you can run it by them and see, like, am I out of bounds here or not? 
so just remember that. And because I, I, I still hear these stories, which is kind of amazing. Uh, today, I've heard uh, two in the last 24 hours. It's like, really? So uh, I don't like hearing that. Everybody should be treated fairly and honestly. And if they can't advocate for themselves as well as Ed does or I do for myself, you know, not everybody's got that kind of personality or support system to push stuff for something. So remember that. And uh, there, you know, if you need a second opinion or an objective, uh, you want to talk to somebody and you're worried about the manager, go to Laura and then or me and uh, we'll we'll talk it out and see if we can work something out. And DRC, too. I, I think they've been very fair and they, they're neutral, but they're uh, really there for the uh, consumers, not for us. So thank you all, uh, Laura or anybody else. Sarah, do you how do you want to wrap this up before everybody takes off for lunch? Um, I'll just Sarah doesn't have okay. a mic, so I'll yell for her. All right, Jamie. Thank you guys for joining us today. Remember, Dor does have a booth out if you have any questions and want to speak to them directly. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and join us at the next meeting. Have an awesome day, guys. Thank you.